Hey there, everyone. The episode you're about to hear was recorded on May 25th, before Jonathan and I learned about the tragedy of George Floyd's death. We decided to delay releasing this episode because it just didn't seem appropriate at the time. Both Jonathan and I fully support the Black Lives Matter movement, and we talk a lot more about it in episode 89, and I hope you'll give it a listen. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy episode 88 of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Edwards, and with me, of course, the cranky, unreleased virtual board game that probably needs a bunch of patches to my smart Kickstarter decisions, Mr. Robert Lundgren. How you doing? Hello, hello. I was talking about TTS, man. I don't think it's a cranky game. TTS? No, no. It's not, it's no, not cranky. You were cranky with me right before we started recording, so I had to get a little joke. You asked me a question that was literally right in front of you. You asked me if we had a blank to the blank joke. And you didn't. E- I can't be bothered you to read. Even glance down, Robert. Could- I can't be bothered to read. I have better things to do with my time, like be a chef. I don't even know we'll how to read. But <laughs> <laughs> is this a foundation for ants? <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, Jonathan. I'm doing. I'm doing super. You're. 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 You're spicy today. You're like. You're like. <laughs> I am. I am. I got that spicy Rona disorder. Spicy Rona. Yeah, it's basically I'm becoming largely intolerant of the continued Rona shenanigans, and I'm just tired. I want I want the world to go back to being the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? You know what? The Rona shenanigans just make that process take longer. That's true. That is true. Well, as always, let's go ahead and get this episode started with a big old thank you to our patrons over at Patreon. You guys are helping us keep the lights on, and we truly, truly appreciate it. We love you. Thank you so much. There's not much else that I can say about that. True, 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 true. And, Jonathan, happy National Bubba Day. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Bubba is an affectionate nickname for brother or close friend, and today is Bubba's Day. If you have ever been nicknamed Bubba, this day is for you. It's official and everything. It's on the calendar I look at, which is amazing. Can I call you Bubba the rest of the episode? I don't know how I feel about that. You are in the South, though. It does feel like a Southern thing. It does. It does. It's just me adopting the way of life here. I'm just adopting a saying. So let's continue on, Bubba. Let's do you, see do you want to, Do you want to actually say that to like a, a, a PNW drum circling like hippie? Like, is that, you know. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> hey, man. All right. All right, Bubba, let's do this. Um, moving right along. And that's when this day became for me. Heart. That's right, because uh, everything's about you. No, 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 not everything. I, I have children, sir. I'm well aware that not everything is about me. <laughs> and I'm over 40 and I watch TV. God, do I know that everything's not about me anymore. Oh, God, isn't that the truth? Some of the things that my children and wife watch, I just don't understand what's happening anymore. Yeah, yeah that, that's because we're no longer culturally relevant. We've had this discussion before on the podcast. There's even an episode named after it, but... Yes, yes. But you know what? You know what? This day is about me because you just made it so. So thank you for that. That that's that brings a warmth to my heart and a spring to my step. I got you, Bubba. 
It does just roll right off the tongue. I, I I get this like little like 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 shot to the heart right every time. Like there's this little like it's like my cold black. Do you give heart. love a bad name? You get yeah, no, but like every time <laughs> every time you do that, you like glow on the embers that that are in my cold dead black heart, and they they do glow just a little bit. And maybe if you do it enough, I'll be like the Grinch, and my heart will grow two sizes today. Just trying to stoke those those wild heart file fires. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now we're now we're moving into uh, Passion of the Passions territory. Passion de las pasiones. Yes. Mm. But not this episode. This episode, we got other stuff to talk about, like Ray, who checked in and told us about a bunch of stuff he's been playing. But but first, you got to announce off the shelf, sir. You skipped ahead. Oh yeah, I did, didn't I? Yeah, God, you did. I thought I had a good transition going there. I that up. Let's try that again. You had a great transition. I'm keeping this all in. This is this oh, okay. gold. This is now comedy you gold. Deep in there too. <laughs> <laughs> all right well it's time for our off the shelf segment that is of course the segment the, the segment that is of course the schmegma <laughs> <laughs> that is of course the segment where we talk about all the wonderful things that we've gotten off the shelf onto our tables or tvs or computers or xboxes and into our hearts this whole this whole beginning this whole opening is comedy gold and we're doing it in record time usually it takes us like 10 minutes to get here so i'm proud we're rolling baby we're rolling yeah so- Ray checked in online, told us about a bunch of the stuff that he's been playing. Yeah, yeah. Stu- I'm kind of really, 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 really genuinely jealous about the Black Fleet stuff, too. I, I know nothing about that game. I really want to play it. I vaguely recall it's Age of Sail and it's like a legacy game. Let me verify that I'm thinking about the same thing because I have had a day. So I want to make sure that I'm not thinking of something different and then sound dumb, which I'm really good at. I mean, Jonathan, have you listened to our podcast? You sound dumb quite a bit, but I could see you wanting to double check because, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's Age of Sail. It is Age. It, it, it's exactly what I was thinking of. It's from Space Cowboys. Wow, so much yeah. music in this episode so far. So it's a it's it's a People a call me a space cowboy. Some people call me the gangster, gangster love. love. Some people call me Maurice. Wow. wow. <laughs> God help us all. <laughs> it's the voice of an angel. Sure, you fell and started up hell, but it's an angel nonetheless. I never claimed anyway, that I was a good singer. I, I, Black never, Fleet, I never said that out loud, sir. I would never claim that. I enjoy back singing. On to- it doesn't mean I'm Back on it. topic. Back on topic. <laughs> That's my line. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Blackfeet, blah, blah. Blackfleet is from Space Cowboys, and they make good stuff. Uh, it's a tactical card-driven game. And it's all set in Age of Sail, and that makes me happy. You know how much I love that. So Yeah, I remember Ray was, uh, I don't think this made it into the podcast, but he was like really wanting to get that game, and he couldn't quite justify it. But at some point he did, and now he's playing it, and I'm glad to hear that. So so behind the scenes, look, he was he was stressing about getting that game. Do you remember that? He was kind of... Yeah, he, I do. I do. It's got really neat ship miniatures in it, too. It's got, oh. it's got a good look. I mean, Space Cowboys makes such nice stuff. Oh, you had to say miniatures. You had to say one of my words. I did. Fleet. I did board game now you can even put little um little uh cubes on it as you sail around because you're carrying cargo duh look See. at them they're kind of like little plump little ships and they've got their their little cannons pointing out oh oh they're sort of cartoony that is cute yeah yeah aren't they adorable ray should paint those that would work that would work that so right this is, this is what i okay so i know i know what you're thinking Ray. i know what you're thinking like how, how are you going to do the colors you paint the sails the appropriate colors and then you just every, paint everything brown and give it a wash, and you know red ships have red sails. 
Black ships have black sails? It'd be good times. For me, to, oh, but one of those ships doesn't have sails. Well, no, they got them curled up. It'll work. It'll work. It'll work. I have faith. Anyway, yes. Ray also played Camelot Second Edition, which I need to take that off my shelf. I have not played that in an age, and it needs to happen. I think, I think when I got it, I don't think Eowyn was quite old enough to do that one yet. I think, I think I might give that one another go. We'll see how she feels about that. It's a lot easier to play games. You know how it is. It's a lot easier to play games if the, if the kids are involved. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Because when the kids aren't involved, and it's just like you want to do the things, you, you want to watch all the violence and sex that you can't watch while the kids are around. So, yeah, like some of the other <laughs> stuff just kind of goes away. Like I, I've been dying to watch the Patton Oswalt uh, comedy stand-up thing, and I keep forgetting about it by the time, it, you know, mommy and daddy time starts up because we end up watching something else. But, yeah. <sighs> anyway, and he also played uh, My Little Scythe with the Pie in the Sky expansion. Is that – don't doesn't regular Scythe have like a, a airship expansion? Is this sort of the My Little Scythe version of it? Uh, I can't speak to the My Little Scythe one, but yes, uh, Scythe does have the the Wind Gambit expansion. All right, Ray, when you hear this, and if I haven't asked you before then, please tell me, like, we're having a conversation, even though the conversation will have happened on my end, like, a week in the past. This is like Doctor Who right now. Yes, is is that riffing off of that the regular expansion or is it something else? Please tell me. And, and just jump into it like we have just been having this conversation, like that one episode blink, even though it, a week will have gone by for me. It'll be fun. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. It'll be good times. I'm excited now. I'm excited for future Robert. He's going to have a conversation with Ray that'll come out of nowhere. It'll be fun. <laughs> and it'll be good. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it'll be good. All it's right. It's about to start. It's about to start thundering and lightning here. I just got the alert on my phone. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. The the, the Rona clouds. Thunder and lightning. Something very, something very frightening is frightening. Me. You better knock. On wood, baby. Well, we're going to talk more about his last game, Camel Up, in just a few moments because we actually got a chance to all play it together. Well, why, why, why don't we just talk about it now? Why don't we roll into board games first, like like crazy? All right, people. God, that's insanity. Stop it. All right, fine. Camel Up. Ray might have played the Camel Up Second Edition uh, physical copy, but we all got together on Tabletop Simulator and played Camel Up uh, First Edition as well. Not a lot of differences. Uh, the main thing is in second edition, they have a camel that goes the other way, the wild camel, and he can drag camels back. So the rounds last a little bit longer because sometimes things get bumped back a little bit more frequently than just uh, the little things you can land on. But that's the only major difference I saw. Besides, it didn't have the super sexy plastic uh, pyramid. It's got the cardboard one. You know, that cardboard pyramid has a certain je ne sais quoi, if you will. It, I love it. It makes me happy. But, you know, the edges start getting a little, you know, use. The plastic one, oh, will, yeah. it'll stand up for oh, more Oh, and I've, I've played the daylights out of my copy. Like, that, that, that is a game that by far has some of the highest use of, of anything in my library. Yeah, well, I borrowed uh, the original one off of uh, at the library, and that one was, like, beat up. Beat up. So, yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I glad Like, they need to get the plastic one for the library because that'll just stand up to more use. So yeah, we played. We all played Camel Up, which was super fun. We played it with three players. It was you, myself, and Ray. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't know about you, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, yeah, the tabletop version was good. You had to like instead. Of, you, you, they didn't have a button to like. Make... You and I tied, right? Yes, I don't recall. Yeah, and then I, I think you and I tied, and then Ray just basically d- demolished the two of us. Yeah, yeah. Ray curb stomped the host. It was it was ugly. Yeah, it was ugly. It was very ugly. No, I, I saw what he did, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think he's got a, a beat on the right way to play, but but yeah. Looking at you, Ray. Got the the eyes. 
I know what. Yeah, Trump don't did. don't don't play betting games against Ray. He's he's on to something. <laughs> Has Ray been to Vegas? Should we take Ray to Vegas? I miss Vegas. <laughs> Isn't that the name of the guy from uh, Rayman? Isn't it Ray? That's Tom Cruise's character though, and he's Raymond. But Raymond, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's not that's not the Hoffs character, or the Dustin. No, Hoff. but I just I knew it was from. What do you call it? Yeah, Rain Man. God, I can't. Rain Man. God, what's wrong with me? I can't even think of it for more than more than a second. I like it. I like it. Random Jonathan. See, my my wife commented that last episode we were pretty negative, and I think that was because Sam Jackson Jonathan was here. But right now we've got like Screwball Jonathan, and I like Screwball Jonathan right now. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. He mm-hmm. loves you too. Sam Jackson uh, Jonathan was there because I was tired. I wasn't feeling all that great, and uh, yeah, some days are better than others. You know. <laughs> And you had a he had a headache. Anyway, focus, that Jonathan. That never helps. That never helps. Focus, Jonathan. The the, the uh, what else did we play that day? That was yesterday, right? We played. F- was that yesterday? Yeah, that was yesterday. Man, man, COVID time just isn't real time. Uh, yeah, so we also played uh, uh, Flame Rogue that night, which was Ray's first time. And uh, yeah, I I realized I screwed up like right before the end of the game. I shouldn't have burned my exhaustion cards right at the end of the game. Like, I, I, I was in the lead. I probably could have stayed there, like, thinking about what was in my deck. But, yes. Oh, well. C'est la vie. I will know more for next time. But that game continues to be interesting. It is, uh, it's interesting how, especially with more players, like, how tight that game gets. Yeah, it's remarkable from a math perspective that no matter the number of players, no matter what you choose, like, that, that, grouping just stays nice and tight nobody gets left behind it, it really is just it's a small it, it's it's a real credit to the to how tightly designed that engine is yeah my my only complaint at this point was i i wish we could play on a different track because right now the games feel very samey where you know there's a lot of like using your okay resources or your bad resources early in the game to try to like save the good stuff for the end of the game and it, it makes kind of the beginning drag a little bit but I, I have a feeling if we had some of the alternate courses with the alternate stuff, it would fix a lot of that. Yeah, I think, I don't know. we got to figure out how to use it. Somebody has, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was good stuff. And then uh, a week ago, right? It was like, it was a while ago. We all got together and we played what we're going to end up deep diving today. Well, I've played it a lot. I've taught it to quite a few people at this point yeah yeah you know what we're not even going to say the name we're going to hold you in suspense like it's not doing something different with the deep dive today though so stick around because it's going to be i just realized i'm a unique thing for us i'm totally going to put it in the show notes so this isn't a surprise at all so this is a bad plan abort abort people don't maybe people don't listen or look at the show notes until after the show whatever anyway or or at all like me And then you and I, uh, we played one night, we played Guillotine on Tabletop Simulator. God, that was ugly. You beat the shnikes out of me. The shnike. Thank you for censoring yourself. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know what I need to find? I need to find. You're welcome. (laughs) I need to find a guillotine like (laughs) piece in another game so we could actually have a physical guillotine there because that's the only thing that game lacks. It doesn't have the guillotine. It's missing some of its charm. Which is annoying because there are things where you, you physically move the guillotine to the other side of the line and it it's, helps that it's there. So, yeah, I need to find a guillotine on Tabletop Simulator so I can just have it and just place it out. I will save it as an object. I will, I will find it. That will happen before I play that game again. 
Uh, we also played Llama. Yeah, I've played actually. I've played Llama. I taught Llama to a couple of coworkers, and so we were having a lot of fun with that too. And uh, Llama is going to come back up. That is that. It's funny that we played it here, and we will get to that later. And yeah, that was it. That that's actually literally all my board games. Uh, Camel Up, Flame Rogue, uh, the thing we're going to talk about later, Llama and Guillotine. So, have you played anything addition to that, Jonathan? Uh, yes, I've played quite a bit this uh, last couple weeks. So, um, oh, I forgot we, to put down Scythe. We totally did that. This yeah, week we too. all played Scythe together. That was number one on my list. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so oh, okay, so we. And got that it. was a good match. That that full size match that you and I did with uh, Ray and Brendan. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No, but this is what we got to talk about. You're, see, that was last week, sir. That was last week because we we reviewed it last time. No, no, no. Oh, that's right. That's we right. We played right. Scythe, the Steam version, with my wife and Ray and Brendan. Which was fun because uh, Gina had never interacted with them before. Oh, and and my buddy. Um, and what was interesting about it is the thing that Ray said, which we talked about in the, in the last episode when we reviewed Scythe, completely true. I like the tabletop simulator version better because yeah. it makes you move all of the components. And uh, you know, I was talking to Gina about this. Like a lot of tactile. Yeah, but it it it's part of the experience. Like you need it because it's. If it's all just like numbers at the top of the screen, it's harder to kind of get a sense of it in a weird way, you know, because the numbers go up without your input, you know. And so like, like I didn't know where my popularity was at until I was thinking like, oh, I should probably start working on my popularity. That's one of the reasons I lost last time. And I didn't even have and this was right almost right before we stopped because we had to stop because of stuff. Um and uh it was getting late yeah yeah but i i i didn't even know what my popularity was because i hadn't bothered to look because i didn't put the piece down you know putting the piece down is really important in that game like well okay i i I, let let me let me kind of add a little something that you're right putting the piece down is important because it is a reminder but also they made some ui choices in that game that were just poor and one of them is that you can't there's no place where you can just glance and get a sense for where you are on all the different tracks it's just not intuitive no, it's not an intuitive um, implementation of the UI for that game. I'd agree. And then as the turns go around, like the camera focuses in on the individual players and you can't ever like really look at the full board. So it's kind of hard to get a sense of what people are all up to because everything feels kind of separate. It made me realize a few things about that game uh, that I, I didn't realize before. One, that game is extremely fiddly. Like there's a lot of stuff like there's a lot of balls in the air when you're playing that game, you know? And well, yeah, because you're tracking what? There's like 14 different ways to get stars? 16, I thought. Yeah, there's a ton. There's a, a metric ton. And, you know, just pulling out plugs to for upgrades, uh, you know, moving your, your, your war track around, moving your popularity track around, moving your actual physical pieces around, uh, and all of the, all the various resources that are out on the board. Like, I was thinking... I was thinking about other 4X games I played, and, and some of the 4X games I don't like are the ones that just have mountains of resources. And I realize that Scythe has a similar mountain of resources, but the game is abstract enough that it works. But the thing is, when you take out all of that tactile sense of it, it's really hard to keep track of all of the various resources because you just get like a layer removed from it. It's weird. Scythe, the board game, is a lot better than Scythe, the video game. Yeah, I'll agree with it. At least that's my sense. No, absolutely, I agree. Not not that not that it's bad. Not that it's bad. It's still it's still a good game. You know, as as board games go on on Steam, I'm I'm sure it's fine. But uh, between the two, I would rather play it on Tabletop Simulator or in real life. Ah, real life, physically playing, I- interacting with other people. That's crazy talk. It's crazy talk. Why 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 would you say something like that? Like, yeah. 
Now I'm scared. <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying. All right. So what, what else is on your uh, on your list? Flamme Rouge. Uh, we already talked about Flamme that. Rouge with you and Ray, and um, I also play Flamme Rouge with some friends uh, from work, which was super fun. Cool. Uh, same with Llama. A lot of Llama. A lot of Llama. Uh, llama is so easy to teach, and it's so quick to, to, to deploy. It's, it's, it's perfect in that respect. Uh, it's especially light and good to teach coworkers. Guillotine. I actually taught Guillotine to a coworker as well, and we played. Um, and I did to him what you did to me. <laughs> I played a lot of guillotine in my day. Yeah, yeah. I had to get back into it. Like I hadn't played it since the last time you and I played it, which was when you were out here. Yeah, yeah. You still have my copy. <laughs> I do. I don't know how that ended up happening, but I do have it. And I'm, if I ever do get to come visit you, it's coming. It's coming. I thought you're gonna. I thought you're gonna send me a microphone. Just slip it in there. Send you what? You're gonna send me a microphone. Yeah, I will. Let's I will. slip it in there. And you know what you should do? You should get one of your kids to draw a oh, picture of two turntables. Uh, what else did I play? Um, Camel Up, which we talked about. Patchwork. Patchwork. So, um, patchwork. Yeah, I and played a, a bunch of Patchwork with uh, a couple friends because it's so quick and easy to uh, teach. I don't know what happened with uh, the game that you and I tried to play the other night, but it just wasn't working right for whatever reason. Not sure what happened there. Yeah. I think it was a technology piece because that wasn't supposed to be happening. Yeah, maybe I set my resolution wrong or I don't know, whatever. And the potion explosion, the game I've been meaning to take off my shelf for over a month now. That's your fault, by the way. That's completely your fault. You got me thinking about potion explosion again. And so I started playing it again and now I'm addicted to it. And I've been playing it almost constantly. I have the app. Are you playing on the app? Are you playing real life or what? Yeah, I've been playing on the app because it's just easy I, I don't i you know like for whatever reason i've never managed to get a copy of potion explosion every time i get it uh in my craw to go buy it it's just it's unavailable like i always seem to catch it in between print runs uh-huh. so yeah i do not currently have a copy of potion explosion even though i really really want it badly and i'm hoping to get my copy soon but yeah i played the daylights out of potion explosion lately probably three 30, 40 games. Like, it's, it's nuts. No joke. I haven't played the living crap out of it. Nice. Uh, what else? What else? What else? And I think that's about it for, for board games, which is not a small number. Like quite a, that's quite a bit. Yeah, true that. True that. So where, where should we move on to? Let's go to movies and TV just because they got it open. Okay. Cool beans. I've had a weird week when it comes to... Or a weird two weeks when it comes to movies and TV. Yeah, why is that? Okay, so... My daughter takes after me. She likes scary, spooky things. Uh, I I think I admitted to letting an eight-year-old watch The Army of Darkness not all that long ago. Not exactly proud of it, but I'm proud of it. (laughs) But my my kid keeps keeps pushing for that. She keeps wanting to watch scary, spooky things. And I've been really, really stressing about what to show her. So the first thing we settled on, we fired up Twilight Zone Classic again. Uh, because you know, sixties TV standards are probably okay, uh, for a kid. And, uh, and she loves it. Like we, we started watching them a while ago and she kind of liked it then, but she got really into them for quite a few days and we were just watching episode after episode and she, you know, and it's, it's good for an eight year old because eight year olds are kind of random with short attention spans. And so the fact that the, everything changes every so often, you know, like we can watch wildly different episodes, you know, two, three, four at a night. Uh, it, it holds her interest and she really, really liked it. She likes the spooky stuff. So that was good. 
But then she started pushing for a movie again. And uh, I was trying to think of a spoopy movie that, you know, could give her sort of the the pleasure of watching something a little forbidden. And uh, I remembered a while ago, we started watching Tremors, but it was a little too much for her. And so I thought, well, maybe we should we should take a crack at that again, because uh, tr- the original Tremors is just PG-13, you know? Yeah, Simon. I watched it with the kids. Yeah, yeah. So we watched it. It's not even particularly sexually suggestive either. No. And then we watched Tremors 2, and then we watched Tremors 3, and now we're halfway through Tremors 4. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that is definitely a descending scale of return on investment. I completely disagree. Tremors 4 is much better than Tremors 3 at this point, so there you go. Um, but yeah, yeah, we've been having a good time. Uh, she, she's, she's been really, really digging it. It's been kind of fun, uh, you know, talking about the Graboids and stuff. Um, I... I think she might be off of it at this point. I, I don't know if I'll finish Tremors four, and I'm a little I'm a little miffed about it because I actually have never seen I never seen Tremors four actually all the way through. I caught about half of it on Sci Fi Channel. How did premiered. you never watch Tremors four? I mean, it's it's in every bargain basement DVD bin I think I've ever seen at a truck stop. Like I said, I I've seen all of Tremors three on Sci Fi Channel, just not in 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 one sitting. So actually watching it from A to Z was pretty good. And then I've only seen half of Tremors four. Uh, we we just got to the point where I started watching it on Sci Fi Channel one night. So I mean, I guess I've seen the whole movie now, but not in all one go. And uh, and Tremors five, six, and seven. Seven's coming out this summer, sir. Good Island God. Fever. Tremors seven. Island Fever. This can't possibly end well for anybody involved. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I will let you know. I'll let you know how the Tremors movies hold up. But yeah, I mean, we're having a good time. She likes it, and they're scary, but they're not too bad. They're not particularly gory. the The goriest bits are usually involving creatures blowing up with their sort of orange goo blood. So that's been good. And uh, yeah, yeah, we've been having a good time. She she likes the Tremors movies. And then, um, do you watch Last Week Tonight, Jonathan? Yes, yes. Uh, I've been uh, fascinated by the Rona series. Okay, so did you watch this most recent one about sports? Rona 7, the sports? Yes. Yes. So did you remember the bit at the end about uh, Jelly's uh, marble runs? Yeah, that's so cool. I We fell down the rabbit hole of that in this household. It is, in a word, amazing. It's this guy, and in an interview, he claims he's autistic. I, I haven't watched this interview, so I yeah, whatever. But I, I read that on the internet, that he, he says he's autistic. And so, and he can't work from it. He's like out on medical or something in Denmark or Sweden. I forget somewhere Nordic country. And uh, yeah, he just makes marble runs. Like that's his hobby. But they're not just marble runs. Right, right, right. right. So, okay. So what, what he did was he recorded it and he just used to record marble runs like they were races. And then uh, at some point they got some guy to comment that commentate them like they're a race. And it's, so weird and it's like the human capacity to anthropomorphize anything is magic <laughs> it just, oh, complete it just magic. is it is because okay so what he does is he sets up these marble races and there's teams and uh typically there's four marbles in a team and they all have names and then when they commentate these things they commentate them like they the marbles are racing with conscious thought and not just at the whims of physics and you know chaos theory and ian malcolm's little you know tiny imperfections in the skin and the droplets and whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's fascinating. And you start rooting, you start like getting favorites and I love it. So I'm a, I'm a team Momo guy personally. 
I, I decided to end up going with Rule of Cool uh, with the marbles because uh, the Team Momo are clear marbles with green and blue stripes. And I'm like, that that's good enough. I like green. And uh, yeah, there you go. And uh, my team members are Mo, Momo, 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 and Momo, 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 Momo. And their alternate is Mimi. <laughs> and uh, I've been going through some of the old races, and I think it was Momomo got in a really bad crash uh, in early in one of the seasons, and he had to get surgery, and he was out for the rest of the season. And uh, but he would watch from the sidelines, and they'd have a little Team Momo marble with like a little teeny tiny stick, which was his crutch, because he had to walk on crutches for a while. <laughs> That's so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's. Uh, it's so good, Jonathan. It's it's just what the world needs right now. It's so bizarre. And they're about to fire up uh, the the thing that John Oliver paid for or his show paid for. Yeah, so. they sponsored the whole friggin' series. Yeah, yeah, which is funny because, like, it's the highest sponsor they've ever had because I've seen some of their other sponsors and it was, like, bulkdominoes.com. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's so perfect, though. It's so perfect. Yeah, yeah. So I've literally watched... Uh, since uh, the Sunday it was on, so it was like a week ago, probably about nine or ten hours of marble races. Enough that I've got favorite events, enough that I, I root for certain people. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. Uh, my daughter, she likes Team Galactic because her favorite color is purple. But uh, one of the uh, – it's Smoggy. It, one of the racers, Smoggy, she likes too. So whenever Smoggy's racing, she roots for Smoggy as well. Smoggy's part of the Team Hazy because they're all sort of, you know, hazy marbles, smoky marbles, I guess. Yeah. Cloudy marbles. Yeah. And the names are just dad jokes, which is the best part. Like there's the Tiny Tim song, like Tiny Bubbles. (laughs) Tiny. Like one of the team names. One of the team names is the O-Rangers and they're all orange, you know, o Rangers. Oh, stop it. Yeah, it's good times. <laughs> and they have different events. They have the sand rally where he just has like a whole bunch of beach sand on a hill and he just sort of like makes a course in the sand. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> That's what I've been watching, Jonathan. Is that it? That's it? That's all of it? Yeah, Tremors, Twilight Zone Classic, and Marble Races. That's what has been playing in the Sizzy. <laughs> all right. I I have had a slightly different experience. So Star Trek, dis- or well, I should say CBS All Access had uh, a free month that they uh, were offering during the Ronas, and so I took that as an opportunity, a challenge, if you will, to get caught up on the three CBS shows that I actually care about. So I have watched in its entirety now all of Star Trek Discovery seasons one and two. I think on last episode I was still wrapping up season one, right? Yes. No, you're wrapping up season two. You're almost okay, done. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I've now wrapped up season two. Uh, hold up. Hold up. Before we go get any further uh, thoughts. So uh, if Star Trek Discovery season one was, um, how should I put this gently? Uh, oh, we talked about it in depth. A it, mess. It was a mess. Yes. Then Star Trek Discovery season two was the modern Star Trek that we've all been waiting for since the end of Voyager. Yeah, I'd agree. It there, was, there's a reason that, that Star Trek Strange New Worlds is happening. It it's was, happening. It was not perfect from a construction standpoint, but it was perfect in every other way. There were a couple of minor 
story errors that needed to be addressed. And for some reason, there's this really weird scale thing going on that doesn't make any damn sense. Like the whole turbo lift thing. Like, why is it like a roller coaster? It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I think that's a carryover from the, the JJ movies. Also, also, why is it that like there's 200 ships within two starships that that doesn't make any sense either. Like it just like, it's just goofy, some goofiness, some goofiness. And that, that hangar bay seems oddly large given the rest of the ship, but whatever I, I can look past that. Also, have you, don't have get you me started the, on the size. On, have you seen the size of the main hangar bay on the enterprise D by the way, that they never showed on air, but it was in all the deck plans. Have you yeah. ever seen it? Yeah. It's you, way too long. They may, they made a they made a 3D recreation of it on uh, on the Unreal Engine before it got shut down uh, by CBS Boo. Um, it was incredible. That main hangar bay is absurd on the Enterprise D, like absurd. Like they they literally have. I, I think you, the compliment think is like four runabouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would. No, the hangar the main hangar bay is titanic. It takes up most of the interior of the saucer section on three decks. It's it's huge. Like you ever like I always would wonder. It's like who's the poor schmuck that doesn't get a view, you know? And they all have to live in the center of it's like no, that's just a giant hangar bay. <laughs> that's that's all that is inside. It's just this giant hollow hangar bay. So anyway, not exactly outside of Trek's Ballywick yeah, large hangar bays, but like it's just I don't know. It, it leads it and and a couple other things like the turbo lift thing lead to this weird kind of scale issue. It just feels like the scale's wrong sometimes. I I would agree. I would agree. Nothing terminal, uh, because the rest of the series is so friggin' good, and Captain Pike is the best thing ever to happen to Star Trek since Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, I can't wait for Strange New Worlds. It's gonna be fun. And that is super easy for me to say. 100% the easiest thing I've said this month. Alright, so what else did you watch? Um, the announcement video for Strange New Worlds, which looks friggin' incredible, and it brings back Pike and number one, and it totally, totally pleases me. To no end that that's happening. Yeah, yeah. And then I watched uh, Picard Season 1, which is, in my opinion, a tale of two shows. The first show is the first half of the season where, I don't want to spoil it for anybody because it's still relatively new, but some things happen, and there's some weird pacing going on, and it's not all negative. Uh, It is somewhat slower paced because they are exploring what it means for Picard to age, but... There's also some pacing issues where it has these weird spurts of J.J. verse action that don't fit with the pacing of exploring what it means to be a retired admiral with no cause. So, yeah, I can agree with that. It, 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 it's, it's just there's there's an oddness that like there's there's a fight going on in the first half of the season. And then you get to the second half of the season. And good Lord, it's a damn near perfect television show. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that assessment. The second it's, half of Picard is an exercise in tight writing, mated with reverence to the original subject matter, mated with some of the best character work I think I have ever seen in a TV show, both in terms of growth and exposition. Just frigging brilliant. Brilliant in every way. It never feels like they're pandering to fans. It always feels like it honors fans while never sacrificing the plot. 
What I really liked about it is a lot of times in Star Trek, they implied uh, that there's this kind of seedy underbelly to the Federation, you know, like in TNG where they would go to these like just just dive bars on random planets. And uh, DS9 had it too. Like Quarks was definitely, at least at the start of the show, one of those dive bars until it became very Federationized after time. But, you know, they always sort of implied that there's this weird sort of underbelly to the Federation that wasn't quite as bright and shining as what you saw if you were like in Starfleet, you know, and this show explored that space quite a bit, which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's the thing too. And, and I know a lot of people say, well, that can't exist in the Federation. It's like, you bet your ass it can, because did you see any Federation officers anywhere in any of that? And it's like, no, no, this is because like in all those dive bars, when somebody in a Federation uniform would walk into one of those dive bars, people would go like, Oh, Whoa, what's happening here? This is weird. You know, and it's because they're not used to seeing those people because it there is this kind of, yeah, just this kind of schlumpy, bad side of the utopia, you know, and it's still a post-scarcity well, society. It's, it's, it's not like as much as they want it to be like it, it's never, ever 100 percent been a, a utopia. It's always been uh, like 30 percent actual utopia and 70 percent dream of complete utopia. And this just does a better job of showing the 70%. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And But that's, that's where Picard is moving around. That's the circle he's moving around in at, in this show. And it's interesting. And there was nothing in that show that I couldn't imagine, like, if a starship blew through there with the Federation crew and just interacted with it for 10 minutes. Like, I've seen that. I've seen that episode. You know, it, it's happened a couple times in TNG where they just sort of w- go to a weird dive bar. Or the one where freaking Data gets captured by that, like, weird collector guy. Like, he yeah. exists in that universe, you know? And, yeah, yeah, like, it, it it for sure exists in that universe. It's just, we you've never really taken a look at it because the, the Federation doesn't go there. That's not their area. Like, that's well inside Federation boundaries. And they're following, quote, the rules. But it's still, yeah, you know, it's still not not the federation it's not it's not starfleet and yeah it was it was really really cool like seeing that and uh, there's a lot of like ex-starfleet officers that make up uh characters in that show like a lot not just picard there's a couple more and it's i don't know it's just it's really interesting like i i i believed in that that sort of seedy underbelly of the Federation that they've always sort of implied is there. And now it's like, I guess confirmed in Canon, <laughs> but, but I will say this still Star Trek show, still oh, no. a Star Trek show through and through uh, more Star Trek than Star Trek season discovery. Season one was that's for darn Ag- sure. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Because a lot of people don't like, cause we were talking about it. So, you know, Star Trek has always been an allegory and right now people are being a little isolationist and nationalist, and so the Federation became that. And a lot of people are mad. I've seen this argument on the internet because like, well, the Federation shouldn't be that because it's the ideal that we strive to. And I disagree with that because a Star Trek show should be positive and it should show a hopeful universe, I guess. But that isn't necessarily the Federation's job. It's the character's job. Yeah. And in Picard, Picard was that character. He was the positive force. And he, and it was really nice to see. It was nice to see this future where one guy can say like, look, we've lost our ideals. We need to do something and kind of get the, the Federation to bend back a little bit to that. Yeah. We're kind of like 
we're kind of screwing up right now. Like, why, why are we doing this? And, and yeah, that was nice to see. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but that's part of the show is Picard is, is he's trying to get Starfleet to do the right thing and they refuse. So he goes and does the right thing himself. And, uh, yeah. Which is also the most Picard thing ever. Yes. Agreed. And I like that the show gets into that, that he's a bit of a pompous ass because of it. And when he was in Starfleet and he could get away with it because he had the weight of Starfleet carrying that pompousness forward, it was justified because he could he could bend the universe around him in that way. But when it's just him, he has to work a little bit harder for it. And when he just assumes that he can do it, uh, he gets in trouble sometimes, you know? Yeah, it was it was great. It was so, ah, such a great show. And I will agree. Like the first the fr- like he doesn't even leave Earth until the fourth episode. I'll, at the end of the third, technically, but whatever, you know, like the the first, the front half of that show is so it was slow and it worked better watching it weekly. I got to say, cause, um, yeah, just watching it all back to back to back. It, I, I think it would, it would be a little, it'd be a little weird, but I, I was watching it weekly and, and weekly it was fine. Cause weekly it amped up. Cause I was, I was a little unsure of the show at first. Oh, it, I was too. Like I, when, when they announced it, I was, I was thinking to myself, I don't know that this needs to happen. I thought that they did a fine job sending that crew away. Uh, and it turns out the answer was no, they didn't. <laughs> they did such a good job. Well, it's oh. because they, they, they didn't try and capture the old magic. They did the right thing by the characters and they tried to capture what does it mean for these characters to move forward from that. Well, and they also made it a more modern show because, like, I, I forget who I, who said this, but somebody was telling me it's like it's funny that the best Deanna Troy episode of Star Trek ever is in Star Trek Picard, <laughs> of all things, you know, where she's actually like useful and you know, like, because they they just never really knew what to do with Deanna Troy in TNG, unfortunately, and and her episode in Picard was really good. Yeah. There's some really genuinely heartbreaking stuff in there too. Like there was oh, more yeah. than one time uh, watching Picard that I was just like, "Oh, there's so much dust in the air, just too much <laughs> dust, <laughs> just just a little too much dust." Can we please just get back to the part of the year where there's none? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so happy for Jerry Ryan. I've always had a soft spot for Jerry Ryan. I've got that photo of her. She she apparently did not vo- the Voyager set was not a happy set by all accounts and she uh, she had reservations going back to Star Trek but you know when she heard John Luke was there she always heard stories of how good the the TNG set was because of you know Patrick Stewart and so she's like okay I guess I'll come back and then she's like I'm so glad I came back I'm so glad this was great and I'm like oh Jerry thank gosh yeah somebody's having a good Star Trek experience good stuff yeah. good stuff. Uh, just boy, if you haven't and you're at all a Star Trek fan, go watch Picard. On a side note, uh, I ordered the Vulcans and the uh, Andorians for uh, Star Trek Ascendancy. So I can. Uh, we need to play that, Robert. Truly. Groovy. Groovy. We'll do. We'll do. All right. Movies and TV. What's the last thing you. Uh, man, I, don't, I lost it. Where is it? Oh, um, Twilight Zone. Yeah. And so I started watching the new Twilight Zone, the Jordan Peele one. Uh, I don't know. I'm partway through the first episode and I'm enjoying it. It's, it's a good take. The first episode is probably the weakest, I would say. Wow. Okay. I'm, I'm not having any problems with it. It's just, you know, kind of shifting gears away from science fiction. I'll tell you again what I told, said last time. I, I don't think any of the first season are particularly classics, like level of the original Twilight Zone, like the episodes you think of when you think of classic Twilight Zone, the good ones. Uh, I don't think any of them hit, come close to hitting that, but they're all they're all solid. 
I mean, the, the episode you're watching, it's the weakest one, and I would still call it a five. Yeah, it's it's certainly enjoyable. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely enjoying it without a doubt. I, I thought the first one part of its problem was it was a little overly long, like it overstayed its welcome. But uh, the subsequent episodes, like the 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 timing on them, gets really wonky, which is to say that they're not like made for TV thirty minutes. Like I think they were intending to air the first one on TV for an hour, and I think that's why its timing is a little off because they had to like kind of put in filler. But all the other episodes are pretty much just as long as they need to be. And they work a lot better for it. Oh, so so is this uh, CBS All Access only? Yes, yes. Okay, that kind of gives me a lot of hope because I don't want the subject matter to get any cheesier than it already is. Yeah, yeah. So, but like I said, like the the first episode is probably hearing, hearing shit in, in Picard. By the way, <laughs> I don't know that it was even necessary. I gotta I gotta be honest with you. Every time I heard it, it actually like took me out of the moment more than it helped. It kind of breaks canon because of the whole colorful metaphor thing that, you know, from Star Trek four. But on the other hand, like the explanation of we couldn't cuss because we were on network TV is like, "Ah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but be clever like they did in Battlestar. Like, oh, oh, no, space swearing. Space swearing was cute, but I don't think it would work in this day and age. There's been too many shows with space swearing. I think it's kind of trite at this point. Farscape and uh, Battlestar both did it. And I, I don't know if you can get yeah, away with it again, especially at Star Trek. Well, but they didn't do it on the original Trek show. So it, it would be doing it now and shoehorning in space swearing. It, it, I don't think it would play. The first F-bomb that happens in Picard, I, I think, was right where it needed to be. It kind of set the tone for where, where the Federation's headspace was at the time pretty well. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we're not talking about Star Trek Picard. Uh, are we all done with TV then? Yeah, I think we're all done with the TV. Should we move on to video games? Sure. What have you been playing? Uh, Animal Crossing. So you've mentioned seven or 19 times this last month. Yeah, yeah, that's all I've been playing. Uh, More valuable life lessons for my daughter out of video gaming. Via shenanigans, I got myself a lot of money in that game. So much money that I gave uh, a million bells to my daughter and my wife because of the shenanigans I was doing. And I felt a little dirty because part of the part of that game is the grind, and I felt like I was cheapening the grind. But I was like, "Eh, a million bells isn't as much as you think." But my daughter thought she was rich. She was like, "I'm just gonna throw dollar bills, like fan it out, like here you go, everybody." And she was just buying everything. And uh, you know, part of that game is buying off your house and getting expansions on your house and all that. Yeah. So she's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna upgrade my house until I'm done." And she, you know, she went and she upgraded her house and she upgraded again. And then she went in to upgrade it for the third time. And she's like, daddy, it's, it's not working. And I'm like, what, what's not working? And she's like, I can't, I can't pay off my loan. What's going on? And I'm like, you, you don't have enough money to pay off your loan, honey. It, it just doesn't work like that. And she's like, but you gave me, you gave me a million bells. I'm rich. And I'm like, <laughs> the way you've been spending girl, you ain't rich no more. And she, yeah. and like watching her mind break, quickly that goes <laughs> and watching her mind break around the concept of what i'm not rich what i spent all my money (laughs) it was was so and she got really upset i'm like why don't you just go fish and start working for money and she's like i don't want to work for money i'm like well then you ain't gonna pay off that loan and then she got like mad at me for saying that it was so good jonathan Mm. (laughs) welcome Mm. to the rest of your life child yeah yeah so yeah good good times 
All right, let's go through your, your your laundry list of games. Oh man, what have I been playing? Um, the new Apex season started up. I love the new character Loba. She's super fun. She's got this bracelet that she can toss and teleport places. You can even toss it through window grates and then pop into a building. Hmm. So it's a really fun way to surprise people, um, and get out of trouble, which is neat. Uh, I downloaded because it got stupid cheap. Uh, Mutant Football League. This is from the uh, guy who made the original Mutant League football on the Genesis. Many. Oh wow! Wow! He, he came back and made Mutant Football League, and it is <sighs> the football itself is super fun. The teams are super fun, but man, some of the humor. Yeah, that flew in the nineties. Not so much today, man. Fair not enough. So much today. Not so much today. Go watch some clips online. I'm sure you'll know what I mean. Uh, Streets of Rage 4 continues to be super fun. I think I've played it through with most of the characters now, and I just keep going back for more because it is it is a little slice of perfect. I'm, I'm loving it so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, uh, Warhammer Inquisition, uh, I've got a, a partner to play through with, so we've been kind of slowly chipping away at that, and that's been a lot of fun. And then, more importantly, um, DCS, the supercarrier module that they have been promising us for many years, has finally been released. And now, when you're on the carrier, there's a full animated deck crew that goes around doing their work, launching other planes on the deck. The deck is this busy, busy place. And uh, when you pull up, he's giving you all the hand signals, telling you what to do with your plane, where to put your plane, etc., Man, it takes the the immersion up to eleven, especially in in VR. It's amazing. It's so cool. Hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, I picked up. Uh, I, I've got a thing about video games with sharks in them. Okay. And Man Eater came out. I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's a game where you play a, and I, I I can't make this up. You play a bull shark, who uh, was. Pulled from its mother's womb by a professional shark hunter who has a reality show following him around. And this guy hates sharks so much that he scars you and then tosses you into the ocean waiting for you to grow up so that he or you're, you're worth the hunt. And then you go on a long quest of trying to get revenge for what happened to your your, your kind and your mother specifically and uh, trying to become the biggest, baddest bull shark around. Uh, And you do this by eating everything in sight and um, slowly trying to uh, tap into your evolutionary powers to evolve into the world's most perfect predator. Okay. It's a game where you're a shark and you swim around and you eat people. And it's fun. It's stupid, 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 but stupid fun. And scheduled to be released on the Switch. Perfect family entertainment. Yeah, just cruise around, you eat stuff, man. And you get bigger. Like right now, my shark's a like a, an older teenager. I'm getting close to adulthood now. So gets, How large are you? She, she, because it's a girl, uh-huh. uh, uh, is, I would say she's probably about 12 foot right now. Hmm. Which is not huge for a bull shark. They can get pretty big. Yeah, 16 feet, I think, is the record. So... I, uh, bull sharks are, it, it's interesting that they chose a bull shark because, you know, they can swim in fresh water, fresh yes. water for short periods of time. So a large part of the game takes place in fresh water and it's, uh, yeah, it's great. When you attack things, you can grab it with your mouth and then grab onto it and then thrash it back and forth. Yeah. Well, the, they 
I, I hope they're riffing on the Jersey Shore shark attacks in 1916, sir. Did you hear about those? I, I don't remember them. No. Yeah, yeah. In uh, 1916, a bull shark swam up the I forget which river. Wikipedia, save me. Would it be the Hudson. Oh no! Just swam up the beach. Yeah, it was on the Jersey Shore. Yeah, just swam up the beach. Just started tagging people swimming. But you know, 1916 didn't have phones, didn't have great ways to communicate fast. So yeah, just a lot of people out swimming got attacked. There were four, four or five attacks in pretty quick succession over a week. Good times, good times. I will send you the Wikipedia article about this so you can you can role play the spirit of the Jersey Shore shark. Like I, I grew up in the water. I grew up seeing sharks pretty regularly. It's just a thing that you see and you know, you have to be if you decide to go in the ocean, don't get upset if the shark does what sharks do, you know? Yeah, that's why I didn't go in the water when I lived in Texas ever cuz I found out about alligator gar and I just noped. I'm like, "Nah, that's just no." What? Just no. No. In the rivers? Yeah, nah. Little gar's not going to do nothing to you. Alligator gar? Screw that. It's a giant scary fish. No. He's not going to hurt you. Don't, don't care. When was the no. last time you heard about a, a, a fish attack in Austin? You know what? Don't care. Not going to happen. I'm not going to be the one. <laughs> you would too. It's good to know your place on this work because you know it would be you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a vote of confidence. I don't know what kind of vote that is, Jonathan, but I, I will take it positively. Do you know what the last thing I got uh, on my evolution chart was for my shark? Hmm. Bioelectric hmm. teeth. <laughs> it's an evolution that I'm now going to quote because I took a screenshot of it. This evolution releases an electrical charge each time you bite, giving you lightning teeth. On bite, you release an electric shock inflicting two damage and putting one stun counter on anything within two meters. A target is stunned when it accumulates ten stun counters. A stun counter is removed every three seconds. It's fair. So I have tier one bioelectric teeth. All right. Good times. Good times. This game is so dumb. It's so, so dumb. It's the dumbest thing ever, and I love it so much. Oh, I'm currently 2.4 meters in length. It's at the bottom of the screenshot. Uh, 2.4, 2.4, that's about what? About seven. Nine eight. feet. Well, 2.4. Yeah, no, that's about eight, nine feet, right? Yeah, give or take. Not bad. Not bad. All right, well, to round this out, because I think we're done, I started working on my consolidating all my RPG lore again, because I, 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 I'm still waiting for Tabletop Simulator to get on sale, but I really want to play my D&D game again. I, I miss D&D combat. I really need to get back into that. I'm so sad. And off of last week, I, I double-checked. 420, 2021, Jonathan, falls on a Tuesday. Oh, Lord. And <laughs> How did this timing happen? I don't know. But if we keep to our current two-week schedule, it also falls on a Tuesday that we would release an episode. If I didn't screw up while I was doing the the playing with the calendar and figuring it out so yes i i i guess in a few months you and i will have to have the discussion on are we gonna have the very special 420 episode of the forgot my dice podcast be careful that your podcast playing device may in fact smoke during this particular episode 
Uh, oh, Lordy. So, oh, Lordy. Yeah. What are you doing to us? What are you doing I, to us? I don't know. I, man, I live in the PNW, baby. Like, that's just the way we roll up here. I don't really want to watch or read this article, though. Okay. Well, why don't we wrap it up then? I, th- I think we're Well, done. that brings us to the end of our off the shelf segment. Lots of good stuff off the shelf this time. We will be back in just a few moments after a short break with our Wisdom of Crowd segment and our next episode of. No time to bond. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> hey, man. It ain't Moonraker again. I had to say that. It's important <laughs> that we make that distinction. We'll be back in just a moment. Do you have a tabletop, board game, miniature game, or RPG that you're going to release for retail? Or do you have an upcoming tabletop Kickstarter that you're about to launch? We would love to interview you for a future episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. Send us an email to fmdpodcast2016 at gmail.com to schedule an interview. It's time for our Wisdom of Crowd segment, our bi-weekly tabletop news segment. And we actually have quite a bit of news today. And uh, Robert, I think you're going to start us off with some not wholly unexpected, but definitely big news. Yeah, top story of the evening, people. Gen Con 2020 has been canceled. As you said, not terribly unexpected. I not shocked when I heard the news, but still very sad. I, I and am actually a little shocked that it took as long as it did to, to pop out. You know what? We've been over this before. <laughs> but once again, if your favorite convention has not canceled itself yet and you're getting like, why aren't they canceling themselves? It is because until the convention cannot go on due to a force of gad, if you cancel your convention, you still have to pay quite a bit of money to the place that the convention is held. And so a lot of places have to wait relatively late to cancel because if they cancel beforehand they have to pay a lot of money a lot of money and get nothing for it so there you go oh i know i know it's just at this point like truly why why aren't people just coming right out and saying it and i'm not talking about gen con i'm also talking about the companies that are holding them accountable for this sort of stuff well uh i don't know capitalism man You, you sign contracts that say if you cancel it you have to pay these fees unless you know, the government says that you can't hold this convention. And finally, we got to the point where, you know, the, the government said you can't do you can't have this many people in this kind of space. So and Gen Con's like, well, there we go. Force of God, we can cancel now. But they just had to wait until that happened. It's legalese nonsense. I It, it shirks all common sense. But that's the world we live in, Jonathan. So there you go. Yeah, isn't that the truth? But yes, also the virtual Gen Cons that we talked about last year uh, have also been canceled. So you cannot go to your FLGS and do that, which is probably for the best. Uh, And they said, quote, we will do something to keep gamers connected this year. But they have not said what or, you know, whatever. So we will find out what that means in the coming months. Uh, No word on if the Ennies are going to happen this year, if they're going to do a virtual thing, like what's going to happen with all the very and the Diana Jones Award for that matter. Like, how is that going to happen this year? Who knows? We'll find out. We'll keep you updated. We do know one thing. Even though Eschenspiel isn't happening, we're still getting the Spiel de Jahr 2020. And the nominations for the Spiel de Jahr are out. Longtime listener, first-time caller, Reiner Knizia has a game up for the Spiel de Jahr. That's not true. I, can't, I don't even know how many times he's been nominated. But yes, uh, Reiner Knizia's My City is up. It's a city-building, tile-laying legacy board game. Uh, two to four players working together over the course of 24 games... Uh, to basically create a, a city. 
Another name that you've probably never heard of if you follow board games at all, Uwe Rosenberg. He's up for another uh, Spiel de Yard, this time for Nova Luna. I thought he directed all those terrible video game adaptations. No, no, that's Uwe Boll. Oh, oh, okay. I apologize. Or as I like to call him, uh, the Ubola the of, uh, of the film industry. You're welcome, Will. You're welcome. Go on. So it's a tiling game with a twist. One to four players. Everybody has a tile. Um, or pardon me. Each tile has its own color. Lots of different achievements uh, for you know, basically how you place your tile and your colors around neighbors' colors. And once you get to a certain requirement on the colors, you get a bunch of uh, achievements, and those equal a win of the game. Cool, cool, cool. Pictures by Christian and Danielle Storr. It's a party game, three to five players. Uh, you are trying to copy a picture using blocks, sticks, stones, icons, cubes, rope, and more. Uh, it's an homage. If the the homage is close enough, the uh, other candidates playing the game will have an opportunity to try and identify what the picture is. So that's your Spiel de Yar nominees. Uh, there's also some Kenner Spiel de Yar nominees up this year. Cartographers, a role-player game by uh, Jordi Aden. The Crew, The Quest for Planet Nine by Thomas Singh. And The King's Dilemma by Hjalmar Hyak and Lorenzo Silva. And if I've mispronounced any of those names, I am truly terribly sorry. Uh, they are not my forte. Cool, cool. Fair enough. So, yes, just to kind of follow up on what we were saying earlier, the, the Eschenspiel has officially now been canceled. They, they had talked about punting it back a little bit, uh, but it is now 100% gone for the year. It would have been uh, in October. They are now postponing it. Well, not postponing it. They've just canceled 2020s, and they are now going to be October 14th through 17th of 2021 uh, will be the next spiel. So no Eschenspiel 2020, but they are still doing the award. Okay, so Wizards of the Coast every year has done a streaming event where they get a whole bunch of people together and celebrities and whatnot and play D&D. And I was wondering if they were going to do that this year, considering that getting a whole bunch of celebrities together kind of breaks this whole physical distancing thing. But yes, they're going to do it just with everybody on cameras at home. So I I guess I should have saw that coming. Last year was Descent. The Descent this year is called Roll with Advantage, which somehow is hinting at the new whatever, because they always seem to hint with the title. So I don't know how that works, but whatever. The event is going to raise money for a comic relief. It's going to feature such genre alums as Amy Acker, who you might recognize from Person of Interest and Angel, Felicia Day, David Harbour, you know, the sheriff of our favorite show here, uh, Matthew Lillard, Brandon Ruth, Deborah Ann Wall, and so many more. And, uh, Quote, fans of D&D will learn about the new setting and storyline, as well as accompanying new products, plus tons of unique gameplay available on June 18th, 2020. D&D Adventures League will have four short adventures everyone can enjoy. Interestingly enough, the press release they released on the website 
says almost the exact same thing, but it says fans of D&D will learn all about the new storyline. And they don't mention if there's going to be a setting or not. So who knows? Is Are they going to release a new setting? Are they not going to release a new setting? I don't know. But we'll find out in a month. So there you go. The more you know. Or the less in this case. Who knows? Who knows what we know? But we'll find out. Wizards of the Coast, June 18th. Roll with advantage. Watch it on Twitch and stuff. I'm spent. Go. All right. Well, well, well said. Uh, but so Sheriff Hopper. To- but Sheriff Hopper is going to be in it. That's kind of cool. Sheriff yeah, Hopper playing D and D. That does yes. make me happy. Um, so we talked a little bit about Flotilla uh, previously on the show. I think I'd eventually like to deep dive it with you. It was a game from WizKids came out last year. Uh, I picked it up at, I think it was BGGCon last year. Uh, shout out to Zev. Yeah, yeah, it was. Miss you, buddy. Now they are releasing a new game in that same world. This is Seastead. And what is Seastead? Uh, so basically, uh, it's in the same world as Flotilla, and this is a game that is to be played with either two players or solo, unlike Flotilla, which is much larger. You are diving into the sea to collect resources or using resources to collect uh, to construct buildings on one of your flotillas. There's a bunch of cards that you pull when you're diving. Uh, you choose to keep one, and the other one goes to uh, your opponent, and you're all focused on building the best floating silly city. Nice. Designed by Ian Cooper and Jan M. Gonzalez. So uh, nice to see that uh, WizKids uh, apparently had some success with Flotilla because they're going back to that uh, universe with Seastead. Hmm. Okay. Flotilla's the game that just like, I mean, my gosh, so friggin' deep. <laughs> it's, a real, <laughs> it's a real crunchy game. Not in a bad way. I really enjoy it. But Has somebody made that on TTS? Uh, yeah, I have it. I have it downloaded. Hmm. And then finally, on a much lighter note, Funko is making more games. Good. What are they making? Okay, so we're getting multiple new Funkoverse strategy games, including Jaws, Back to the Future, DC Comics, Wonder Woman, and Cheetah. And we're getting a game called Pan Am, based on Pan Am Airlines. You compete with Pan, uh, Pan American Airways and each other to build an air travel empire. I will obviously be buying this. You're such a goober. Dude, A, it's Pan Am, the last great airline. B, uh, it's about airplanes and air travel, so you know I kind of have to. It's not my fault. Well, technically it is your fault, and you're still a goober, but I love you for it. They're also releasing Last Defense. It, you have 20 minutes to defend this, or pardon me, to save the city. Last Defense will throw monstrous threats such as space aliens, spider robots, large blobs of ooze, and more at you. You have a 20-minute limit, which is controlled by an app to uh, basically save the city. Cool. Yacht Rock. Two to six players are living the life of 1970s Southern California Yacht Rockers. I did not know that was a thing. (laughs) You don't know about Yacht Rock? Like, Yacht Rock is legit a, a thing. I, I was a child of the 80s, sir, so no, I have no concept of what was happening in pop culture eight years before I was born. It also has one of the best uh, Wikipedia entries ever. Yacht Rock, originally known as West Coast Sound or Adult-Oriented Rock, is a broad music style and aesthetic identified with soft rock, which was the most, com- uh, which was the most commercially successful genre of its era, and its peak existing between the mid-70s and early 80s. Thank you for that, sir. Dude, 
go listen to a yacht rock playlist on Pandora or something. Like, uh, I'm 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 already going down that road, sir. Just just move moving right along. Okay. Well, I for one will play the Living Daylights out of Yacht Rock because I believe Prospero Hall is working on the rule set, so I think it's going to be dope. Godzilla Tokyo Clash. You will take the form of Kaiju, Mothra, King Ghidorah, Megalon, Godzilla himself. Whoa, M- M- Megalon? Megalon. They're scraping something if they're putting the, the giantest cockroach ever into the monster list. <laughs> it's a battle for dominance to be the most terrifying monster. You're going to be attacking each other with your own deck. You can throw tanks and trains at each other. You can burn cards in other people's decks. To reduce their future options. So in the movie poster for Godzilla vs. Megalon, Megalon is opening his mouth and these balls are flying out of his mouth. I'm assuming like some sort of like cockroach poop breath attack. And that never happens in the movie. And I'm curious if they will put that into the game. There's we will keep you updated. Out. There is. To tune in when it comes back. More Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Back in time. Fully cooperative board games where players take on the roles of major characters in the movie. Gotta go back in time. Buying this one too. Damn it. Gotta Uh, go back in time. You're trying to fix Doc's DeLorean time machine and defeat Biff Tannen and the gang. All while trying to get Marty's parents to fall in love. Ew. And then Disney's Haunted Mansion is getting a game. Go on. It's a family board game where you explore the ghost ridden mansion. And you're going to have an opportunity to socialize with each other, score points, and talk to a bunch of different ghosts in in each area. So, something you may not know if you were not a teenager in Southern California, I I would assume now, but going back, Disneyland has groupies. Everything in Disneyland has a dedicated fan base who watch that thing obsessively. Yep. Over and over again. When I was in high school, I had a friend who was really into Fantasmic. And what that meant was every weekend they would go to Disneyland. They would park their keisters at their favorite spot at eh, two o'clock and they would wait for Fantasmic, which normally happened at like eight or nine, I want to say. And that is what they did with their weekend. They just sat around and chatted and waited for Fantasmic and then they went home. I had an ex-girlfriend who was really into the Hunchback of Notre Dame show. Uh, that was briefly at Disneyland. Uh, I guess it got taken over by the area that became uh, Galaxy's Edge. And uh, yours truly, I was a Haunted Mansion guy. I would go to Disneyland. I think my record was nine times. I did that in a row before I ha- got hungry and left. Because you don't eat at Disneyland when you have an annual pass. You just go home. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> I used to do the same thing. Well, were you a groupie of anything in particular? No, nothing in particular. Um, I just really liked going to the park. Uh, actually, you know the the what? What's the restaurant right outside Pirates of the Caribbean? The one where the, the oh, ride oh actually goes right past the restaurant. The Blue Bayou. That's good. Yeah, restaurant. the Blue Bayou. Oh, yeah, it, it's a good restaurant. I was waiting tables at the time, and if I had a particularly good day waiting tables, and I I made some extra money outside of my budget, I would always put it aside and then uh, treat myself to a Blue Bayou dinner. Mmm, that's good. That's a good restaurant. I like that restaurant. Oh, it's probably one of the best things, if not the best thing in Disneyland. I, no, Club 33 is, but that is a close Well, second. okay. The best thing that you and I are going to get into sometime this year. Excuse me, mister. I've been in Club 33. Thank you very much. Shut up, really? Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, that ex-girlfriend who was the Hunchback of Notre Dame groupie, her mother was a travel agent 
And somebody in her travel agent industry office thing had a membership to Club 33, which she would use to woo the high-profile guests. And one of those weekends, something fell through, and she was going to go anyway, so she invited the ex-girlfriend's family along. And since I was the squeeze, I got to go along with it, and I ate at Club 33. For free, actually. It was expensed out. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. I have always wanted to go there. If I ever get around to writing my book and it sells, that was always my plan is to uh, basically get myself in there. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. If you can pay the, I, I don't even know how much it is right now, like one or 200,000. It's crazy what the membership is for that. I, I looked into it recently. It was nuts. <laughs> it must be nice to be like independently wealthy. I I think at the time it was a mere fifty thousand dollars to be a member, if I remember correctly. Well, just just chump change. Just chump change. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But yeah, yeah. I, I have been in Club Thirty Three, sir. So eh. In this one little slivery, small little thing, I am superior to you, and I will hold on to it and cherish it because there are so few things where I get to claim that. Oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> We're men, Jonathan. Everything's a contest, and you know it. Yeah, we're just both devilishly handsome men. You don't forget that. Mm, mm. Oh, Ooh, it's getting hot in here. Always. So you can your clothes. Done. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. That's it for my news. Okay. Do you have anything else? No, no, I'm done. All right, moving right along. It is, of course, time for our No Time to Bond segment. Welcome part 12 of our 28 part series where we are watching all the 007 movies and a couple others in order of release date oh that couple and, others is coming up soon i'm so excited <laughs> so it is now time for film number 12 uh which is also firmly in the roger moore era smack dab in the middle for your eyes only 1981 released on june 24th 1981 for $28 million. It made 195. It was directed by John Glenn, a longtime editor of the Bond franchise, first time director. And uh, he directed the next four movies in the series, all the way up to License to Kill. So, yes, long time director. Yeah, Jonathan, where, where should we begin? Let's let's well, start with the let's let's start with the good. Let's start with the good. Let's yeah, let's start okay. with the good. Um I really enjoy the intro a lot. <laughs> I, okay, I'm going to say this. I I forgot this movie. I was watching it and astounded that I had forgotten this much of it. It's not good. It's not Moonraker bad, but it's doesn't mean it's good. However, I will say this. Uh, shoot, what's the main lady's name in this one? I can't remember now. Which main lady? The the one with the crossbow. Oh, God. Um, you'd think Hold I'd on. remember this being that I just watched it today. Melina Havelock is the character's name. Melina Havelock. Okay. She, by far, is the best lady character to appear in a Bond movie to date. She murders more people than Bond does in a far more horrific way. Although the one goon that she, like, shoots and then doesn't murder, she feels sad about. Like, she's, like, kind of worried about him. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I shot you with an arrow. You'll be fine. But but he wasn't a main target. He wasn't a main target. That's true. It wasn't the uh, subject of her vengeance. So she she, she felt a little bad about shooting him with an arrow, putting a hole in his chest, (laughs) which I thought was funny. Especially when the other guy goes back in the room and bonks him on the head after she's left. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, no, she uh, she's got her crap together. She knows what she's doing. You know, she uh, her father dies, and she just sort of takes over the company uh, successfully, apparently. And uh, yeah, she kills a few people. Like like, and and no less when they storm the bad guy's lair at the end of the movie, she's there. And there's never a moment where they're like, "Oh, the lady can't go with us." She's like, "She's like, I'm taking, I'm coming with, and I got my crossbow." And they're like, "Eh, all right." <laughs> yeah, no, it's just accepted. In that respect, it's fantastic. And and she's an interesting character too. She's fun to to, to watch. Yeah, she was pretty obviously dubbed and not a terribly great actress, unfortunately, which was a problem in the last movie too. But yes, I will say that their their representation of the ladies has gotten better. And you know what? Once again, if James Bond is hanging out with somebody competent, it does make him look more competent because, you know, he's got somebody he has to keep up with. And so it helps, you know, especially when you're old ass Roger Moore. <laughs> oh, but you know what? I, I, I'll tell you this much right now. Nothing compared to what we're about to see in Octopussy. Because I distinctly remember the last time I watched Octopussy saying to myself, oh, man, he's looking a little haggard. <laughs> it did not help that for the first, like, third of the movie, he was running around in a grandpa sweater. Like, oh, why? Why? So anyway, OK, but we're, we're talking we're focusing on the good. The other good, the 80s hit this movie like a sledgehammer. It was amazing. Like the the dividing line between uh, 1969s. On Her Majesty's Secret Service and 71's Diamonds Are Forever is just as sharp in this movie between 79's Moonraker and 81's For Your Eyes Only. It is nuts how 80's this movie got. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. yeah. Colombian hitman with a giant uh, bikini party. Check. Yeah, check. New wavy theme song. Check. By Sheena Easton, who is then... Basically in the intro credits, which had never been done before. Oh, funny story about that. I was reading this on IMDb. So the weird camera tricks that they were using to film the intro scene, if she moved her head at all, it would make her head look fuzzy. So they had to like literally put her head in a metal vice that was underneath the wig she was wearing. So she couldn't move her head. And she was like, uh, it sucked. It was incredibly painful. And I hated every minute of it. But then I watched the premiere. And the first thing you see in a Bond movie is my head in 70 millimeter worth it and i'm like you know what lady i think you got the right idea yep. <laughs> but yeah oh yeah just just hit this movie with a ton of bricks like it was just so 80s like the fashion the fashion changed so much in that two years it's weird and the music and oh oh and then like oh it was just so weird it was bizarre how how 80s it got just that fast and I'm, i know the next, it, who did the theme song for A View to a Kill was Duran Duran, which is like about as 80s as you could get. That's like peak 80s, but that was 85. So I, I well, whatever. We're getting ahead yeah, of ourselves. Yeah, but that was, that was rock 80s, not, not like, you know, that wasn't the, the Sheena Easton poppy stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But oh my gosh. Uh, who, who, who does, uh, is Carly Simon that does Dr. Pussy? I can't remember. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that next time. But it's fascinating watching these movies and just how quickly fashion can change when something comes in and it makes me wonder you know because like i remember the 90s you know we're all about grunge and all of that and grunge just hit in 93 you know it like came out of nowhere and was everywhere after you know like you can watch a movie or a tv show or something from like 1991 1992 and it looks kind of 80s ish there's still the, sh the the shoulder pads there's still a lot of 80s stuff uh things have gotten a lot more pastel 
uh, in the late in the early 90s by then, but it was still very 80s looking. And then like 93 hits and there is just this like dividing line. And it's very obviously the 90s after that, you know? Yeah. And it makes me wonder, like, I don't think I've experienced something like that. You know, because I, I, we've got a few teenagers roaming around the neighborhood and, you know, they're wearing distressed jeans and just, you know, stuff I, I see. And I'm like, I wonder when we're going to have that experience again where we're going to have, a, you know, like, you know, this Bond movie will come out and then the next Bond movie comes out. And like the dividing line between, you know, No Time to Die and whatever the next Bond movie is, is going to be just as just jaw droppingly boom. And it always seems to happen right as the last guy is phasing out, too. Like the first movie of a new era. So I'm like wondering, like, is this going to be it? Like, are we going to have some weird fashion change with whoever's going to replace Daniel Craig? Uh, I don't know. This is the crap I think about. I, I'm a weirdo. What can I say? But I, I liked watching it. Like, this, this is the fun part about watching all these Bond movies in order. Like, just seeing the, the changing shift in fashion. Because, like, when Roger Moore started this, he always wore a suit. You know? Yeah. And, and look, look at this movie now. He's wearing this awful grandpa olive puke green sweater. <laughs> and but that was the thing back then i i know but it's just weird it's just how fashion changes what, like what about the giant blue like ski romper <laughs> i know right i, I know so. that, that thing is a nightmare in and of itself yeah but just just seeing all of just how society changed because uh so this movie came out in 81 and the first one came out in 61 so we've had 20 years of movies at this point and just the from even this point, looking back in time to the very, very first movie, Dr. No, to this one, just fashion and everything changed so much. Like, you know, like Bond would always go to the office and, you know, he'd do that thing with his hat. And I mean, they, they bring that back up every so often. But now we're at this point where Bond is often in much more casual wear, you could say. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting. And, and just the change in cars, like, you know, the 61, like. I don't think he got the Austin Martin until Goldfinger. That's kind of the I- iconic Bond car. But he had that Lotus in the last two movies, actually. Yeah, but think about, you know, the, the Lotus is the perfect late 70s, early 80s car. And if that doesn't lead us to basically the excess of, say, Miami Vice with the, the Lamborghinis and the, and the yeah. Ferraris. You know, yeah. it, it just seems so appropriate that this is the, the first step that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's it's just fascinating to see how much things shift. And, you know, I mean, this is the 12th movie in the series. So we've watched 12 things and society has shifted from, you know, really really muscly Austin Martin, you know, curve cars to this really really blocky low-res polygon Nintendo 64 Lotus, <laughs> you know? It's it's just weird. It's it's fascinating. Uh, and that's that's one of the the joys I get out of these things. It's just kind of it's a weird like history lesson of, you know, sort of, I don't know, modern history, I guess. Cause yeah, yeah the, it's pop culture, right? I mean, yeah, it is. It's a specific type of pop culture, but it's still a, a, a pop culture. It's, it's the suits. It's the, what was considered suave at the time. Um, Cause I mean, you know, like outside of Europe, like skiing's not such a thing in most of the United States. Like nobody would see that and go, Oh, well that's just culture. No, that's that, that, that I don't know. The skiing thing is it's really weird. Plus, everybody got really obsessed with the Olympics in Europe for a while. Uh, I, I hear it was here, too, because it wasn't the 1980 Olympics. Wasn't that the uh, the the big like 
hockey one yeah, with the Russians the, versus the, the U.S. The one with the the what is it called the the miracle the miracle on ice or something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think winter sports were kind of in the cultural zeitgeist at the time, especially if this movie came out in eighty one. They started writing it in nineteen eighty, so that was for sure on the brain at that point too. So you know, and, and, and that's weird too. It's like these little seeds that get dropped that get dropped into the cultural zeitgeist and then bloom a couple of years later, you know, and, and yeah, it's just things you see like that, but that's a, that's a good point. Like, like watching this movie, you're like, why is there such an extended, extended part that takes place in Olympic village um, from the 19, like 54 Olympics or something. And you have to go back and read like just how nuts the 1980 Olympics were the winter Olympics. Cause we also didn't go to the 1980 summer Olympics. That was the one in Russia and we, we boycotted it. Yeah. So yeah, you know, like, um, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. It, it it is an interesting history trip, and and if you're wondering why we're doing this and why we're being so amused by it, I mean, part of it is this: like, you know, we watch these movies, and you and I, we don't always talk. We actually, I don't think we even have talked about it in the podcast, but sometimes we see things in these movies. We're like, why did they make that choice right here? And so we have to like go and 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 do a little research and figure out what was sort of going on around the time that they would be producing these films to figure out what was sort of in the zeitgeist at the time when they were producing these films to sort of have this response. Yeah. Again, as, as much as we, 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 we do piss all over these movies, and we do, it's, uh, and they deserve it, it's, it's still a fun little experience. Well, you know, let, let's, let's stick to some other goods real quick that I wanted to bring up. Number one, um, I like that the plot is smaller. It, it, it's not this giant organization that can put people in space or that can build a city underwater, you know? <laughs> It is a, a, a much more condensed, more believable Bond film. It makes a lot more sense. And it's very Cold War because it's all about a piece of military technology. And I thought that the intro uh, on the, the trawler that, that is, is basically, you know, acting as a, a uh, scout ship uh, was very interesting and believable. And it wasn't like it wasn't like some of the stuff we've seen with the giant ship that comes up and swallows the submarines. This is just... It pulled up a mine, it exploded, and, it, you know, it, it wasn't even necessarily a plot. It was just, it was an, a target of opportunity. You know what I mean? As I was watching this movie, I was kind of having a hard time following it because it seemed kind of weird and convoluted, all the stuff that was going on. And once again, it seemed like Bond was just sort of along for the ride and not really doing much because he wasn't investigating a lot of things. He was just sort of like, it's like, go here and talk to this guy. Okay, now go here and t- it's like, oh, this guy got killed by this guy. Go go talk to the assassin. OK, we've talked about before that Bond's a hitman, uh, at least in the novels and whatnot, more more than like a spy in the traditional sense. But I, I do like the Bond movies where he seems to be doing a little bit more legwork, a little bit more detective work. I like I like those Bond movies more than just the sort of, you know, go to a Bond. OK, now yeah. go to B, which until Daniel Craig, I'm, I'm coming to find was was kind of the formula. Daniel Craig, they kind of they would give him more Mission Impossible style, like go find this guy and figure out what's going on, and then he would jump around, uh, you know, from A to B to C to D and murder his way there. <laughs> but anyway, that's also getting ahead of ourselves. And and one more good thing. Oh my God, do they not do stunt work like this anymore? Because no, uh, they really don't. Because you and I talked a lot. Like, we said we shared a lot of text messages that basically were like. Wow, safety don't matter for anything in this. This is all about how close to death can we really b- make this happen. Well, and, and close to death happened in this one during the bobsled bobsled chase sequence. Uh, one of the guys in the bobsled, the stuntman, died 
uh, during that sequence. So there you go. Like they were not messing around. They were in a bobsled <laughs> and they were going fast. Yeah. And, and there's some stuff in there, like the intro with, with Blofeld is like from a, from a piloting perspective. Holy crap, man. Like they won't let you do that anymore. You cannot fly a helicopter that close to structures anymore. And and you, you're like, well, how'd they fly that helicopter into a structure? And, and the answer is they didn't. That was just a forced perspective miniature they used. But they were still flying very close to buildings <laughs> and, and and around. And well, I mean, yeah, Bell that goes underneath the 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 bridge within the within the uh, plant. Yeah, like, th- that happened. That was real. that is scary, man. Like you don't understand with helicopters, there's a lot of downdraft, and so. When you go through a structure where there's walls on all sides, even if it's just for a moment, like the wind currents do weird, weird things to your helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's terrifying. And how low he was flying and, and, oh, man, it's just, it's great. Like, it's really impressive. Same with the car stunts. Like, you know, like, I think the last movie that I saw with truly great car stunts that were not digital was Ronin. And that's 20 years ago at this point. Yeah, yeah. The reason Ronan was great was the same reason that these car stunts are great. It's because it's real people with cars. You're lying. What? Mad Max Fury Road. But the, even that had a lot of digital assistance. Yeah, but they were driving real cars. The digital True, assistance was just the, about, the backdrops. No, there was more than that. <laughs> more, than, more than just that. There's, there's a lot more digital going on there than you even realize if you go watch the... the I've watched the some, Well, I've watched some of them, but... At least there were real cars in the desert because some of the true, Fast and the Furious true. movies, there aren't even real cars anymore. They're just no, they've given up hope on everything at this point. So my real curiosity is I just looked it up. The Twilight Zone movie came out in 93 and that was where they had a really bad helicopter accident, which is yeah. I think might be the line where we stop seeing the helicopter stunts. So it'll be interesting to see if that pans out. Yeah, it's not that we stop seeing helicopter stunts, but it's, it's where a lot more care goes into it and they won't let them try certain things. But again, are we are we going to see helicopters flying under bridges and stuff after that point? I'm I'm starting to think that's probably going to be the line where we stop seeing that. So it'll be interesting what happens in Octopussy. Uh, it, it just depends. It depends on if there's kids involved and stuff too, because like they made they pulled a great helicopter stunt for um, the Italian job, the Marky Mark one, mm. because they flew. They actually did fly that little helicopter into a tunnel, and like it's it's crazy what they did. Never saw that movie. <laughs> It's it's a fun little crime movie. I won't call it good, but I will call it fun. <laughs> anyway, for your eyes only. Um, so yeah, the, I, I thought that the intro was good with the the, the way the ship was sunk. I, I think I thought it was very nice that it was just a a true spy movie. It wasn't about you know super organizations. It was instead it was a political tale, and I I liked the little nod at the end uh, to the the relationship between the Russians and. Uh, bond and how it really is just a game and if they don't get to it first no hard feelings well played and i I remember i mean that the that character the russian general he's been in it for he's been a reoccurring character so often yeah yeah that's kind of fun yeah i think my my main complaint about this movie is i i found it boring it was forgettable you know i i didn't remember much of it you know and and i'm certainly think that'll be the case again it's not bad like moonraker it's not cringy it's not like oh god why would i why why <laughs> but uh yeah i think at the end of the day it's just kind of like it's and there it is it's fine i guess not that i think the next two movies are gonna be any better but at least view to the kill had walk-in walk-in makes things memorable oh god he's so much fun in view to a kill i'm so stoked <laughs> I'm sad that we have to slog through octopussy first 
but I'm excited about getting to view to a kill. And, and never say never again, because that's actually after Octopussy, sir. God damn it. <laughs> Why don't you just let me have my fun, Robert? I don't know, because I hate you. True, you're making me watch that movie. Interesting. Okay, so fun little fact. Fun, couple fun little facts here. They didn't know if Roger Moore was going to come back. They only had him sign a three-picture deal. So every movie after this, they had to talk Roger Moore into doing it. And they tested several people, and they want and they asked several people. The first person they asked to play Bond in this movie was Timothy Dalton, who said no because he saw Moonraker and he's like, "I don't like what you're going with the series." So no, and I'm like Timothy Dalton respect <laughs> churning down work because moonraker was a was a dumpster fire fair enough i like you even more now yeah agreed do you remember the uh what was that lady's name it was that countess that he count countess listel oh, von chef the, 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 the blonde the one the one that the poor stunt lady just does a face plant into that windshield at an absurd speed uh-huh oh my god like I watched that that stunt and I, I rewound it and watched it like another three times because I was convinced that it had to be a dummy and it's not. It's the person. That person took that hit. So Cassandra Harris was married to who at the time? Who came to the set and got introduced to the producers? Uh, Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Yep. Oh, nailed it. Yep. Yep. And that is how they got introduced to that fellow. So yes, future future bonds in the works all over the place here. Um, also, well, I found out the guy who Pierce Brosnan earlier than he actually came in, but it, Remington Steele. Yeah, Remington Steele had him, which is interesting because the only reason Remington Steele got renewed for another season was because it was rumored he was going to play James Bond. <laughs> Whoops! But then he couldn't do James Bond because he was on Remington Steele. Ah! I have fond memories of that show. Anyway, anyway, but yeah, yeah, just uh, just some fun facts. Timothy Dalton and uh, and the other guy in the sort of zeitgeist and. The screenplay was written by Richard Malbum and Michael G. Wilson. Uh, they wrote the next several, or they've written a couple of these uh, these movies together. But most importantly, Michael G. Wilson, he becomes one of the producers of Aeon Productions at some point coming up here. He is uh, Albert Bercoli's stepson. And uh, if you watch the credits, I, I've been playing a game of watching the credits and seeing where he pops up. He pops up in the legal team initially, and then he starts working his way into production. And he wrote this movie. So there you go. Huh. Interesting. Yep. It's a big old family project here, you know, and you, and you wonder how they get these people and why people keep coming back. Uh, by all accounts, the Eon production staff and, you know, like all of them, they're they're kind of nice people and, and fun to work with. So even though these movies might be hot garbage sometimes and you wonder why why people work for them, if they're kind of producing crap, it's like, well, it's because these people work together a lot and they're apparently nice. So there well, you go. To be, to be absolutely fair, nobody sets out to make a hot pile of garbage. <laughs> That's what happens sometimes, man. Especially on the production schedule these movies are on, because sometimes these scripts need to percolate a little bit more, but they just don't have the time because they got to release a movie every two years. Yeah, yeah. But like you know, like I said, it, it, I, I I appreciate that they backed down the scale and it yeah. wasn't this this huge thing, and instead they were a lot more focused. And I think that that's one of the things that worked. Unfortunately, it retained just enough of the silliness to be well silly. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Jonathan, we're getting near the end of Roger Moore's run. We'll come back again with sad. Octopussy. Roger Moore will always be my Bond because that's the Bond that was on when I was young, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My, my Bond was Pierce Brosnan. 
because uh, my dad really liked Bond movies and I, I, I'd watched them, but the first Bond movie I saw in the theaters was Goldeneye. And that kind of stuck with me. That's uh, the first one that I saw in the theaters. I saw both of the Dalton movies in the theater, and I think I saw View to a Kill in the theaters. Wow. Eight, so yeah. <laughs> nice. Oh, my God. The 80s were a magical time. God damn it. Yes, they really were. <laughs> a lot of cocaine, though. A lot of cocaine. That's part of the magic. That's the that's the seasoning. That's magic seasoning. That's what they don't hey want guys, to know. Hey, guys, I got this idea for a TV show, right? This guy gets cursed, and he turns into animals, and then he fights crime with the New York police. Let's do it! Man, man, what if we had a show that was a cop show, but we'd spend 20 minutes an episode just having music videos with cars? <laughs> I like it. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, what if we made another cop show, and the car changed into a dude why are you sitting here still talking to me here's some money write that show hold on somebody get desi arnaz jr on the line auto man (laughs) god that show is so terrible it's just so bad you know what my experience with that show was? I, I hope it was your sci-fi channel would re- re-air shows like that every so often. No, my they, experience with that show was when it first came out. Oh, man, mine was the sci-fi channel. Sci-fi channel would take these, like, old garbage shows and then just, uh, they had, like, a block of time every day where they would just air in order in its entirety some random old 80s for, sci-fi TV show, and it was great. <laughs> for a long time before that, I had memories of, uh, of of both Auto Man and Manimal, and like I tried to explain it to people, and it, it was it came and went so quick on TV that people didn't remember it. And it wasn't until Sci-Fi Channel started doing that, and then YouTube started having clips appear that people realized that I wasn't insane, and that I actually <laughs> did remember that, and that made me feel better. Much like James Bond, we will return with Octopussy on the next episode. But first, before our break. It is time for A Year in the Life, our segment where we look back at what we deeped over a year ago, and we get to chat about it again. So, Forgot My Dice, episode 64, looking at this llama, which is where we first heard about the game Llama. All comes full circle. All comes oh, full really circle. It does. How crazy is that? I know. I play Llama a year after we talk about it the first time, when you were just tickled pink <laughs> by the cover. Way to be pertinent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, were, we played the Heroes of Normandy card game. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, wow, man, that makes me want to see if Tabletop Simulator has it, because that's a fun game. Well, there you go. I don't have much to add. I, I, haven't, I haven't listened to this episode. <laughs> I haven't had the time. Well, no, I've had plenty of time. I've just done other things, because I podcast when I was out running errands and in my car, and I haven't done that lately. So, yes. You want to know, know how bad it is? Like, usually one of my highest priorities is just to listen to our show on the podcast, be- see if anything happened between, you know our computers and the RSS feed. And I haven't even finished this week's episode. <laughs> My wife has, but I have old, not weird, strange new world. We live in. Yes. Yes. Uh, hold on. I'm going to look and see if here's a Normandy card game is on there. Oh dude, it is. All right. We're going to have to play this. Well, it sounds like we're going to take that off our shelf and play it on tabletop simulator. So we will let you mo- know more next time. Yes. So for now, that brings us to our next break. We will be back in just a few moments with our final segment where we are going to be deep diving an unreleased game, Foundations of Rome. (laughs) You said the name out loud. 
We love getting feedback, so please let us know how we're doing by hitting us up at one of the following. You can join us on Patreon, where we post bonus content. You can also message us or tweet at us on the Twitter. Find us at Forgot My Dice. You can join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash FMD podcast. If you like the show, the best way for more people to find out about us is to give Forgot My Dice a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Lastly, for those of you seeking experiences beyond our concepts of pleasure and pain, set the Lamont configuration to full hell mode. Oddly, you can find us in several levels of the labyrinth as the only thing playing on the radio. Wait, what? I have such sights to show you, Jonathan. Ah, I need to take your Netflix account away from you. Welcome back for the break. It is now time for our deep dive. And on this episode, we will be deep diving something that isn't even out on the market yet. And then we will be revisiting it in the near, not immediate, but near future. An interesting thing fell into our lap. You backed a game called Foundations of Rome over on the Kickstarter. And what yes, did they give you? The new, the new Emerson Matsuichi uh, joint. And they gave me um, the tabletop simulator version of the game. So here we go. Here's this part where I read copy. The city building board game Foundations of Rome puts you into the role of an architect competing to own land and build magnificent structures. Build domus and insulae, fountains and foundries, and more to increase your renown, gaining glory for yourself and the empire. With 96 wonderfully detailed miniatures in the base game, Foundations of Rome is a testament to the glory of Rome that you can bring to the table. Each player will have their own pool of buildings, which they will play throughout the game on the city board. By the end of the game, the board will be filled with a unique layout for your city. No two games are alike. Turns are simple, fast, and easy to follow. However, this is no light game. Foundations of Rome is deceptively deep, with difficult strategic choices that will have your family coming back for more again and again. So there you go. And that's actually the game in a nutshell, I would yeah, say. Yeah, it really is. I, I am hoping, and we will get to this in the, uh, the the things that are off in this game, but I'm hoping they're using this to basically do a beta test of the game because I have a few quibbles with some stuff, some choices they made. But, uh, yeah, it's a game that does not exist yet. They're producing it now, but, of course, they've got all the rules written and whatnot, and they've got, like, you know, test copies because that's what you do these days. But they released it to the backers once the, the Kickstarter got done. And so we have this chance to play a game that does not exist it's like Knight Rider, except we have a board game instead of a cool car. Very true. Because Ma- Michael Knight is a man who does not exist. True. That part is true. We thought about doing this as a two-part segment. We would do the, the initial um, deep dive now based on the gameplay and the rules that's currently available. And then uh, once the physical release comes out, we would revisit everything, adjust the rules as necessary, talk about our experiences, of course, but then... Really, the question that that I want to answer with you, Robert, is how much of the game is the physical components? Because a big draw of this game is the physical components. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's uh, yes. let's explain how this game is played and what you do with those cool physical components. How does it play? Pretty darn straightforward. You've got a grid in front of you, and that grid represents a bunch of plots of land uh, that are available to you to build in Rome. And you are a builder employed by Romulus, the emperor. Basically, you have a budget, uh, and with that budget, you buy plots of land. And on those plots of land, you can choose to build uh, various buildings. And there's three different types of buildings. 
one of the types of buildings that you can build is uh, responsible for giving you additional income. What, one of the types of buildings is uh, responsible for giving you additional population. And then there is a different type of building uh, that is responsible for giving you victory points specifically based on what is surrounding it. But let's take a look at what you do on any given turn because that's really going to determine what you're building, how you're building it, etc. And really, it comes down to three simple actions that you can do. Robert, what's the first one? I don't remember what they are in order, but Buy I'm going to start with my favorite Buy one. I No, I'm going to start with my favorite one, Jonathan, and that's getting the dollar bills. I love getting the money. And I think that's the yes. second action, but you know what? We're going to talk about it first because it's fun. <laughs> at, at, at any time, because you are a, a an architect in the employee of Romulus, you can ask Romulus for more money. For, for more money. Give it to you. And he will. He's, he's a very generous emperor. Uh, you get five bucks, five glittering gold coins. And then if you have any of the buildings on the map that generate more coins you get that too. So for example, in our last game that we played with Ray and Brendan, I believe I had a two gold building out. And then I also had a one gold building out. So when I chose that action, I would get eight, five plus two plus one easy enough. The other action you can do is you can buy a deed. Deeds are, they're basically the the plot of land. You're buying the the specific, but but they're, they're broken up in an interesting way. So the game is built over three rounds. And so when you begin the game, you start with, I want to say eight deeds. Uh, no, uh, six, six, six. So at the beginning of the game, you are given six deeds around the city and they are just random. And then the remainder of the deeds are broken up into three decks that are spread over the three turns of the game. And then you sort of have like a, a shop, I guess, where you put six deeds out and basically the, Deed that's been sitting there the longest is the cheapest at two gold, and it goes up to like three, four, five, six, eight, and ten, I think is the the breakdown of the six. And yeah, that's how you roll. You know, if you if you really want a deed way up at the top and you have the money to pay for it, you know, or you can gamble, and if it goes down the track, maybe you can get it for a little cheaper. Yeah, because when deeds first come out being ten, in this game, ten is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. I mean, I, I was doing eight eight gold a turn was like pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could go higher, but that, that that seems to be kind of like one of the sweet spots is getting yourself about eight or nine a turn. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So spinning tens a lot, but you know what? You might need that because, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that when we, we talk about building. Yeah. And basically what you do is you play all the deeds. And once all the deeds are out um, and bought, the turn ends, you tally up some victory points, which we'll go into a second. And then the new grouping of deeds comes out and you just do that until there's nothing left. And by the end of the game, every deed that's on the map will be spoken for it will be in the possession of some player yeah and that's important because each round uh, is basically represented by everybody gets six deeds to begin with and then the remaining deeds are diced up into three roughly symmetrical piles and you do not end around until all deeds are gone so that means you can't end the game until all deeds are gone and but you cannot buy deeds all willy nilly. You have a specific number of deed or of tokens of ownership tokens, basically, which you put on the map when you buy a deed. And I believe you have eight. I want to say it's eight. Uh, yes. So that means you can only buy two deeds before being forced to build something, because the only way to get those tokens back is to build something. Yes. And so what it means is, yeah, you have you have to build things. There, there, there's a push pull, and it might be one of the things where you there's a deed out that's really useful, but you just can't get it yet. You have to build something. And it sucks. It's hard choices. And that's one of the when they say this game's deceptively deep. I mean, here here we are at some of the deceptively deep. When to buy a deed 
and do you have enough pegs to buy a deed? <laughs> and if you, you know, it's, and, and there's a lot of push pull. And- yeah. There's a lot, a lot of push pull. And, and, you know, should you gamble? Is this good for anybody else? You know, it's, there's, there's a lot kind of cooking under the, the, the thing. And then what is the final action that is in the game, Jonathan? Um, <clears throat> yeah. And the final action is to actually build a building. And this is kind of fun because you do not have to pay to build that building uh, because you're in Romulus's employ. He's going to build it for you and spend all the money. All you're trying to do is basically secure the land and plan the city. Um, so the, the way buildings work is if you have a deed, you can build on, on it. Buildings come in several different shapes. Some There's some that are a single square. There are some that are two squares, some that are three, some that are L-shaped, some that are four in a square, and then some really big ones that are five to six in a row. For those of you at home who, I mean, I guess you can look at the the fancy picture that we're going to have on our website, but the easiest way to think of this uh, is, have you played that old game, uh, Cathedral? No, I, I, I have not played that. Okay, so you should look it up on the internet. It is obviously is an inspiration for this game. That game, you have a board, which is, a, I believe, a 10 by 10 square. It might be like 8 by 8 or whatever nonsense. In this, uh, you have a cathedral piece, which you put anywhere on the board. And then you have a number of buildings of different shapes that the goal of the game is to have the fewest buildings left on your side. And all of them have to touch the cathedral or touch a building that is touching the cathedral. That is your color. And it's not like that, but it's kind of like that. The, the board is set up very similarly um, based on the number of players. Uh, you, you get a, I think a two player game is like eight by eight. And then a three player game is nine by nine and just goes up. Um, they have a five, a fifth player expansion and that's all already on the board. Again, look at our fancy schmancy picture. So as you get more players in the game, it opens up more real estate, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you just have a number of buildings, and so you're trying to buy these deeds, and you have to get money to buy the deeds, hence the money-getting action, to place buildings of various sizes down, and the bigger buildings are generally better. But what's also nice about it is, say I have a three-long building down, and I, I get the deeds so I could put in an L-shaped one, as long as the building that you are putting in is physically bigger <laughs> than what you are, what's already there, I could replace that three long building with the three L shaped building and just plop it right in there. And then I get the original building back. So no, I can, you can't do a three to three. It has to be bigger. Right. That's what I said. The L shaped one, the three by one, the, the L that's what I said. The L shaped one. It's three and then one over it's L. I thought the three one was it's one, two, three. Right. And the L one is one, two, three plus one off on a janky side. Right. Is it two on one? Or I thought it was even. One, two, three. This this is riveting radio. Regardless, as long as the building physically takes up more room, you can just replace it. No, that's what editing is for. So, yeah. So when you start the game, you know, maybe the first building you place is just a, a simple one by one building. But then you can replace that by with a one by two or a two by two or whatever. And uh, it gives you a lot of ability to sort of shape the game because I remember one of the reasons I did better than you were expecting me to do is I replaced a lot of my money buildings from early in the game in the last round with bigger buildings that were more point generating buildings because I knew the end game was coming. And so I didn't yeah. need, I didn't need money. I started putting in my bigger point generation buildings and, uh, and that that's part of the, the, the building action. You, you, once a building is down, it is not like set in stone. You can basically demolish it and replace it with something else that does something completely different. Again, it's one of those choices, you know, and, and it's one of the things I hooked into, you know, it's like late game. 
I don't need as much money because, you know, the, the plots have been purchased and, you know, the land that's left isn't necessarily the best because, you know, it's, it's by that point, like two thirds of everything is already out more than two thirds. And so, you know, I, I was like, okay, I'll just replace the money generation stuff with the stuff that gets me victory points at the end to make a push for the win and, you know, when to do that. And, you know, should you do that early in the late game or late in the late game? Do you have enough time to do that in the late game? Because you never know when the end of the game is coming. Because if somebody decides to just end the game and buy the last D, that's it. And you may not get a turn. It, there's a lot to sort of, there's a lot of choice. And, and that's where the game kind of shines. There's just a lot of choice. Yeah, yeah. And that, that choice is, um, it gives you a lot of different ways to play the game. And I, I assure you, I've got a pretty picture on the website about this because the cover of Inch for all of the episodes is a picture of the game. And I, I took a few of this when we were playing. So go go check it out. It'll make a lot more sense if you actually see the, the board and all the buildings and all the, the fancy schmancy stuff inside it. When this game comes out, it's I, the, the box is absurd. It's like a cube. <laughs> yeah, it's good size. So, yeah, and uh, I know there's an add-on that was on the Kickstarter to buy even fancier, schmancier buildings with, like, statues and and coolness. So it's going to be a really neat-looking game, um, and it's going to be very physical and stuff. So I can't can't wait to actually see the physical version of the game. Not that the tabletop simulator version is any slouch. Like, the the little little buildings and stuff, they look nice. I mean, if that's what the game looks like, it's going to be really pretty. So there you go. Yeah, it's going to be a real looker. All right, Jonathan. So, how is that rulebook? Because I never actually looked at it. Although it is in the t- it is in Tabletop Simulator. I did flip through it. I remember that. Uh, the rulebook's pretty darn straightforward. Setup is is um, extremely straightforward. Uh, the nice thing is that all of the um, all of the player boards are uh, indented uh, dual layer boards, which means that you know exactly what building to put where because it all has matching symbology. And in fact, the player boards are actually one of the most brilliant parts of this game because as you put stuff out on the board, um, instead of having to go through and do an inventory of what you have on the board and and what that gets you when it comes time to count points or when it comes time to count people or, or money, you can actually look and any buildings that you have out on the board uh, will expose basically what what they are doing for you, so that you can just glance at your player board and very quickly determine what what you've got going on, which is fantastic. Yeah, we didn't talk about the end of the round, so yeah, that that's where that's important. So um, yeah, uh, after setup, the the rulebook covers the basic three rules, which are uh, incredibly quick and easy to digest, and then comes the end of round stuff. And the end of round scoring is where there's a little bit of complexity, but it's all laid out very very well. So at the end of every round, um, your population becomes your victory points. And that also can net you a bonus. In round one, whoever has the most population gets four points. In round two, seven. And in round three, ten. So those can be pretty beefy, uh, as as Rage showed us the other day when we were playing. And if you are tied, then you both get it. So at the end of the first round, if both two people have eight or whatever, then they both get the bonus four points. It's very easy um, and, and like you said, the, the player boards are, are really key to that too, because you can just see how it's all laid out. I forgot to check. Does the, uh, the rule book have a index or a, a, a table of contents or anything? It does not. Not that it was but overly it's long so short that it, it's, it's really not a problem. Yeah, it, it is actually a number of pages. I remember flipping through it, but one of the good things about it is there's a lot of picture examples in the, at least virtual version of the rule book, which is nice. And it, it, it's, 10 pages total of, of content of which easily eight of those is, is examples and pictures. Yeah. Yeah. 
so how are the components? Well, that's tough to say right now. Yes. Uh, on paper, they look amazing. Yes. On the Kickstarter, they look incredible. I think they got the stretch goal where they'll put a fancy wash over everything to give it more shadow. So they're going to hit it with the Newland oil, the uh, the liquid magic. <laughs> uh, no, that was extra. You have to pay. For oh, that. you have to pay extra for that. Oh, well, they hit the stretch goal where you could do that, and you should. Or you should get your own Newland oil, but whatever. I digress. And then, yeah, they had the fancy schmancy expansion. But, yes, we don't have any of that to go on. We just have Tabletop Simulator. The Tabletop Simulator version came with a lot of the bells and whistles because, like, one of the things that was a stretch goal or uh, add-on was, like, a neoprene mat. And you were definitely playing on that in the uh, Tabletop Simulator version. Yeah, yeah. The Tabletop Simulator version also has a lot of the original art assets. It's got a, you know, a a unique cover around. So the art is very Greek-inspired. It's very colorful. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that based on what I've seen in the the renders and whatnot of what they're working on, I think it's going to look gorgeous. And another thing that's coming um, with the physical one that is not represented in the uh, tabletop simulator one is there's a an expansion called Monuments, and those are definitely a game changer. Add a, a lot more uh, depth to the rules. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and maybe I'll get that in. Maybe we'll come back to this because they'll add a few more things in because that's that is also the nice thing. They are updating this game as they go. The first time we played it, um, we had to do a lot of the stuff ourselves, like all of the cards for the one, two, three, four player version of the game. were just in one stack and we had to manually separate them inside tabletop simulator, which sucked. Yeah, that wasn't the most fun thing in the world. And then we also had to put them into piles and shuffle them and then put them into three different piles. And yeah, it was. Yeah. And then like that night, they released a new version of it which did all that for you, which was quite nice. <laughs> yeah, the scripting is super nice. Yeah. This is the part where we talk about anything off in the execution. Yes, yes, I've, I've identified one thing. So when you pick a, when you play the game, uh, you pick colors, much like any game. Uh, I believe the colors are red, red, purple, blue, and green, I want to say. Red, green, blue, and purple are base box. Okay. The problem with that is that the especially the red and the purple, especially on the brown buildings, but in general, the shade they chose to use is too close. And it's kind of hard to see which building's yours. And I, I had that problem a couple times because I was playing purple, where I would look at a building and I really had to look if that was my version of the building or Ray's version of the building when I was looking to replace something. Because especially late game when you have a lot of stuff, it's kind of hard to keep track of like exactly where your things are. And I would say that's a problem that they need to address. Like either the red, they need to either pull the red up and make it like a really bright red or yeah, they just need to choose a different color. They need to separate those colors a little bit because they blur a little too easily in the, in the tabletop simulator version. Who knows what it'll be in real life. And, and I honestly, I, I suspect that the physical version will most likely help that and make a big differentiation. But that being said, yeah, it is definitely something to call out and something that could potentially be an issue. And like I said, I I hope they're using this as a beta test. I hope people saying this out loud will make them go like, oh, when we put those stickers on top of the buildings during production, maybe we should, you know, dial up the red or dial down the the purple or like if you put them next to each other, you can tell the difference. But when you're trying to like look at the table in a glance, you have to like really like look at the table, which is a problem. The glance, the glance part of it is really where it breaks. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a small issue. Uh, I don't have a problem with the game itself. Uh, I remember when we were playing with Ray, Ray was like, I don't know if this game would hold me for ages and ages and ages. 
And then your response was, well, let's just play it and see what happens. Uh, I could totally play that game because I... Only one way to find out, right? Well, I could totally play that game a lot because I love, love building games. And I love playing with Tetris pieces and, and stuff like that. So... Um, yeah, just, just figuring out how to Jenga things together is fun. I enjoy stuff like that. I can play that game all day. I've played this game six times in the past week and I'm not at all tired of it yet. And that's been my experience with, with Emerson Matsuichi's catalog so far in that they, they seem so simple when you first approach them. So straightforward, not a lot of depth. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, this would be a fun light game. But then as you start to dive into it, you realize just how much depth there is. And this game is is following that trend quite nicely. The more I play it, the more strategies that I realize I have an opportunity to try. And, and I realize that I'm nowhere close to the bottom of the depth of this game. Well, that's kind of the ideal game. It's It's also kind of like the hallmark of Euros, right? Like, you know, easy to learn, difficult to master. Like, that's... That is a reoccurring theme. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Recommended player count. This one's the interesting one. So we played a two-player, and then we, we played a three-player game. Have you done a four yet? I have. Okay. Um, because the board, I guess, expands based off the number of players, and it adds in, you know, I don't even know how much more real estate, but it adds in a lot more real estate to buy as you add in players. What I found was our two-player game was very satisfying. You know, because we had a smaller area to purchase from, you know, it did force us to figure out that Jenga-ing and that Tetris, you know, of how to get our pieces all together and, you know, try to look for interesting openings and whatnot, which I enjoyed. And then with the three-player game, even with the expanded board, it, one, didn't feel tighter. You know, I wasn't frustrated. I still had choices. But there was obviously a third person in the game, which was interesting. You know, it, it the experience wasn't that much different i would say does that make sense yeah no i i agree and even when you go up to four again the board opens up and you get a little more real estate and that balances out the additional player buying stuff i'll tell you what i've noticed that the more people you throw into the game the more attention you spend uh uh you know watching the store and the more important it becomes to manage what deeds you're grabbing. Yeah, I could see that. Because it's a lot easier for other people to come along and and basically snipe what you desperately need out from under you. Even with the added real estate, yeah, there's just more opportunities. But then again, there's more opportunities for you to expand in different directions. Yeah, it's a really <sighs> – the game is so simple. Like – you know, at, at the core of it, you know, there's just, there's three actions. The board is easy. It's just a grid, you know, it, it's weird. Like it's weird that there's that much nuance to what you need to do that you can pay attention to. And I also like it because it's just fiddly enough, you know, like the, the figuring out the Tetris blocks, you know, I mean, that's, that's about as fiddly as it gets. There, there aren't a ton of resources. You just have cash and property. You know, it's it's nice. Like, there's just a, a really good balance of, you know, things I enjoy. So, I don't know. It's a good game for me. <laughs> it's also so it's also playing a game of chicken, right? Like, how long do I leave my money-making buildings out before I, I commit to population, which is essentially your main victory point source, or, um, you know, the municipal buildings, which are the brown buildings that let you score points based on what surrounds them. 
No, nah, it's it's interesting. It's definitely a game to to look out for. All right, Jonathan. One last thing. Go. I am very impressed, not only by the sleek and to the point nature of the design, but also by the way it really does capture the theme quite nicely. I continue to go back to this and have fun with it and continue to be impressed not only by the depth that is available to you, but how engaging it is with all the players and 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 how invested you become in in making a nice city that, that works for you. I'm 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 really shocked. I knew I was going to like it because I've liked all of Emerson's design so far, but this one is it it's shockingly fun. I I don't know how else to put it. It's fun. What I think is most interesting is I think this is a very su- successful experiment in how to build hype for a Kickstarter game, which is something that is hard. Because I've seen it happen uh, when I own the store and even afterward where, you know, a game comes out on Kickstarter. It gets a lot of hype. Everybody's really excited. But it takes like a year or more sometimes because of shenanigans for things to come out. And sometimes you run the risk of the hype train leaving the station and people are on the next thing. And then you get this big giant Kickstarter in and you're like, oh, yeah, I ordered that, huh? And but people are all about this other thing that came out of Gen Con or whatever. And you just, you know, then something you spend a lot of money on and it looks really pretty sits on your shelf for a while until a hole opens up in your gaming club or whatever. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this, of, of people doing, you know, tabletop simulator or, or, you know, virtual versions of the game that come out beforehand because it gives you an opportunity to sort of play with your toys before they come out. And is it the same experience? Not entirely, but I think it allows you to build up hype for this game because you know you're going to have buddies and whatnot that can't play it with you on tabletop simulator or whatever because they just don't own it or they don't like it uh, or they don't like playing games on it and it'll keep the game in mind so when it's getting close to getting your physical copy like you will make sure that there is room for it at your table i think it's a really smart idea i hope we see more of this it was fun yeah. like it, it it felt kind of neat and special like playing a game before it came out and and having something ha- having something that looks that pretty you know based off of your your purchase on Kickstarter that quickly that that is one of Kickstarter's major problems the delay of you getting your stuff versus get, you know ordering it is is so long i mean even even on the best case scenario it's like a year you know and it seems like a way to get content out to people quickly, which I like, especially for board games. Like for role playing games, sometimes you can get like the PDF pretty quick. But having a game to play and learn and to look forward to that, that's awesome. Like it's a, it's a great idea. I hope we see more of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, that brings us to the end of another deep dive and yet another episode of the Forgot My Dice podcast. As always, join us on all of our digital domains. We'd love to continue chatting with you. And should you decide to join the Patreon, you can always join us on Discord where we chit-chat all the time, and then you can jump in and play games with us, because that's a thing now. Yeah, I was just thinking, maybe we need to redo our thing, our our commercial, to talk about Discord. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Let's put that on the agenda. Okay. For the next episode. Yeah, I don't want... I gotta write it. I gotta write it. (laughs) I gotta think of another obscure (laughs) reference. (laughs) So that's the end of 88, Robert. We're closing in on 100 a lot faster than I ever thought would happen it feels like yeah flying by yeah um uh, robert any final thoughts so last episode was nice and succinct and short and uh as my wife pointed out negative we we we, you you were hateful and that hateful got into me a little bit and but you know what i'm noticing 
uh, our first segment we recorded for an hour our second one was damn near an hour and then this third one has gone pretty long for our deep dive as well uh, I think I think positive friendly Jonathan and Robert make for longer podcasts which makes for longer editing so I think we need to be more angry <laughs> you, you tell Jimmy that <laughs> that's it right. negative podcast that's our new motto negative podcast everything sucks and I want to die <laughs> well that brings us to the end of our podcast episode 88 is now in the can join us in two weeks when we hit 89 and until then there really is only one last thing to say Robert and that is be excellent to one another and party on you know what I hate, Jonathan? Everything. You. We will see you in two weeks, gang. I'm just kidding. Party on, Jonathan. I love you. The music you heard in this podcast was intro by Elifiel. Additional music was provided by Brian Winkleman. Funding for the Forgot My Dice podcast was provided by our supporters on Patreon. Thank you 